G'day there, folks, and welcome to the Doctor Who Show, episode number five. We are the podcast where too much Doctor Who is barely enough. How are you all? I've had a pretty rough month of May, I've got to say. I won't go on and on about it, but uh, I've uh, had a very bad cold verging on the flu a couple of times. Um, My appendix almost blew up at one point. I was in hospital. All sorts of weird stuff happened. And to top it all off, this podcast is going out on my birthday. So today I turned 41. And don't worry, I haven't told any of the uh, the people who submit to the show, so you won't have to sit through multiple renditions of Happy Birthday during their segments. The first they'll know of it is when it hits their Facebook feeds or something in the next uh, little while. Anyway, that's enough about me. What else happened this month? Well, I guess it was the 20th anniversary of the passing of John Pertwee, which is a a sad date to reflect on in general. I I said on Twitter, it seems not that long ago that it happened, and yet in some ways it seems like an awfully long time ago that it happened. It's a a funny thing, time, isn't it? But to coincide with that, our friends at uh, Titan Comics have announced that there'll be a John Pertwee, well, a third Doctor series, mini-series, very similar to the fourth Doctor mini-series and the eighth Doctor mini-series that they've done in the past, and it will be written by Paul Cornell. So I'm really looking forward to that. Paul Cornell is a great Doctor Who writer. He has also written a lot of comic material, not just Doctor Who stuff. And uh, the third Doctor in comic form, fantastic. Really looking forward to that. Speaking of comics and Titan comics and all that good stuff, we had uh, Matt Barber join the team last month to look at the first of the ninth Doctor uh, comics, and we actually had a response on Twitter from uh, Kevin Scott, who writes those uh, those comics, to say that Matt had had pretty much figured out a whole bunch of stuff in the comic, uh, a lot of things he'd wheedled into the the text and images that a lot of other people, a lot of other reviewers hadn't spotted at all. So, well done, Matt. Uh, just goes to show that uh, we're on the ball when it comes to these Titan comics, and uh, looking forward to reading many, many more into the future. We've got a bunch of Titan reviews at the end of this episode, actually. Uh, Lex is back with a couple of 11th Doctor ones, Matt's back with another 9th Doctor one, and Kevin Kevin rips into some 12th Doctor and 4th Doctor comics, so if you're into the Titan comics, or you just like hearing about them, I've heard that from some people, they um, they don't buy them, they don't read them at all, but they love to hear what has gone on in them and what reviewers think of them, so if you're into that sort of stuff, you're in for a treat at the end of this episode. Now, with me being a bit off this past month, I didn't record an interview to sit at the front of the show, but... I'm happy to say that Proctor Who's Bob Fleming, who's also, I guess, our own Bob Fleming, because he is one half of the Letter Lords, who do the Letter Lords segment, has uh, given me an Andrew Cartmall interview that he originally put together for Proctor Who. And it's a really great interview. The first half, you'll hear about Andrew getting involved in Doctor Who in the early seasons. And then in the second half, you'll hear a bit more about season 27 of Doctor Who, but also Andrew's forays into comics with the Rivers of London series by Ben Aronovich. And then he'll talk about his three-book deal uh, of these crime novels he's put together called The Vinyl Detective. Now, the reason that's important is that the first of those vinyl detective novels has come out this month. In fact, there's a whole bunch of uh, posters in the London Underground. If you're in London and you're on the Underground, keep your eyes out. You may see them. And it's with great pleasure 
that uh, we're going to repeat this interview with Andrew because, as I say, it's interesting in general. He talks about all his great Doctor Who stuff, but then he does talk about The Vinyl Detective, which I think if you're into Andrew's writing and you're into something a little bit different, you should probably go out and buy and, and support it. There are uh, another couple already in the wings. So get on board now and you can be a hipster and say, I was there at the start. Anyway, without any further ado, why don't we hear the uh, first part of this Andrew Cartmel interview. Again, this was recorded for Prog to Who, so you may hear Prog to Who mentioned at times. No, you're not listening to the wrong podcast. We're simply reusing the material this episode. Without any further ado, over to you, Bob. Um, so, hello, Andrew. Yeah, good evening, Bob. How are you? I'm very well, so how are you? Great, thanks. Thank you very much indeed for uh, agreeing to uh, speak to Prog to Who. Um, we're very chuffed. With the fact that you have, um, so we're going to jump into it, if that's all right with you, sir. Go ahead, please. So it's 1986, you're in your late 20s, and you become script editor of Doctor Who. How, why, and what were you thinking? <laughs> <laughs> well, what I was really thinking was when they, the, I, they talked to me about, I was invited in for an interview with John, John Nathan Turner, mm. And then he offered me the job, and it's like my real reaction was, "Oh shit!" Not, not because I didn't want the job, but it meant my whole, entire life had to change. I had, I was living in Cambridge. I was working for quite. I was doing quite a, a good, quite a well-paid job at a, a sort of cutting-edge software firm. So it meant throwing all that out the window mm. and getting my ass down to London and changing everything, which I, I then proceeded to do. But it was um, quite an upheaval. So it, it was. Exciting and nerve-wracking, really. I'd say. Was it your first sort of job, like in the in writing or sort of scripting? Yeah. Well, what had happened was I'd been to university and I didn't really want to. I'd studied computer science as something to fall back on if the writing didn't work out, yeah. and the writing didn't work out immediately. Uh, so I got a job in computer science. But then, you know, fate loves a good laugh. So as soon as I got settled in that, the writing sort of took off. Took off in the sense that. All these scripts I had out there, I'd got myself an agent. He'd flogged a couple of scripts. They were optioned but uh, not made. Yeah. And then he showed a script to John, John Nathan Turner, when John was looking for a new script editor. Gave him something of mine to read. John liked it, invited me in. We had a chat. And then that was suddenly I had a career in television. Brilliant. I bet you were a very happy young man at the time. Well, um, there was always so much pressure and excited excited rather than happy i would say because happy suggests kind of a resting state uh and uh leisure which there never was but i was certainly excited and engaged i'd say that's that's spot on and obviously the uh did you have the master plan the catmull master plan as it's now called oh Um, well well, the Cartmel master plan, insofar as there was one, was to reinvest the Doctor with certain mystery and stature mm. and to sort of take a certain approach to the show. And I didn't develop that approach until I started working on the show and I saw what worked, what didn't, and what I thought was wrong with it when I saw it with what I inherited. Mm. Were you a fan of the show before you, you took it, you, you know, you got the job? No, um, I wasn't against the show. I just, I was... It was, to me, just a cultural icon that was there. I grew up with it. It was in the background, like the the mini uh, or the miniskirt or the Jaguar or the TV shows like The Avengers or The Prisoner. It was part of my culture. So, And the TARDIS, you know, and Daleks, the, these were all things that were 
uh, in the wallpaper of my mind as I grew up. Mm. So I knew about Doctor Who and I liked Doctor Who insofar as I was aware of it, but I didn't watch the show. And I wouldn't say I was really a fan of very much at all. I was a fan of The Prisoner yeah. uh, back in the day. Uh, and also later on I became a fan of Buffy the Vampire Slayer. Yeah. But so, but I, I wouldn't, I'm very rarely a fan of any television program. So it was at the periphery of my vision, Doctor Who, when I, when I came on. Because obviously the, the first season that you, when you came on board, um, you know, season 24, was very, compared to the 25 and 26, which in my personal opinion are my favourite seasons of Doctor Who um, in general. Uh, but season 24, was that already sort of in place, the writers and such? Or? No, 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 no. All we had, we, we had the first episode, one episode of a four-part story, one little script, and it was called Strange Matter. Now, that's what became Time and the Rani. Yeah. But even that first episode changed considerably. That was all we had of the 14 episodes. That was all that was there. And we didn't even have a doctor. Colin Baker had left. There had been a big Ferrari and there had been all kinds of bad blood and a big falling out. And Colin Baker was gone. There was no doctor. And there was one episode, one 25-minute script, which needed considerable revision. So that's where we were when I joined <laughs> Was it? Were we involved in the casting of Sylvester McCoy then? At yes, all? to my eternal delight. What, oh, John, John Nathan Turner was a complex and interesting character. He was often the nicest of men, and, and he was also often a very difficult man. Mm. But one of the things I would say is that he, he was very open in the sense that when he, st- he got me on board and he felt that I knew what I was doing, I was on his side, part of the team. So when he started casting people... There was no reason he wouldn't have me. He would have me in the office. He would get me to meet people. It was great. It was terrific the way that he would just involve me to that degree. And not everybody necessarily would have. But I guess me and him were the show. There was a wonderful production secretary called um, Kate Eastiel, who was a terrific asset to the team. But that was it. That was Doctor Who. There was me, John, and the secretary. That was it. Um, people would come production teams would move in to make a story. So Time and the Rani would have Andrew Morgan and his team. Then they would go away again and a different team would come in. The only fixed people were me, John and Kate. And that was it. And Kate wasn't involved in the creative decision. She was magnificent in what she did, but she wasn't really in on that sort of thing. So when you think about it, there was nobody else except me for John to have there. So it literally was four production team changes for each, each adventure then? Yeah, I mean, there might be some... Well, for instance, John's boyfriend, whose name was Gary Downey, was, uh, I think you call him production manager, something like that. Uh, so he was sort of like a... He was the guy who sort of called the shots on, on, the, uh, on the floor to make sure everything was in place. Anyway, he tended to be there all the time because of his relationship with John, and John would pull strings to get him on a lot. Mm. And, and there were sometimes... Oh, yeah, there was also a production associate so tell a lie there was somebody called the production associate who was the um the unit accountant she she was the accountant that was Anne Faggeter in certainly the first season and I think some of the subsequent ones so she was involved but she was only on the finance side mm. so there was that level of continuity those people would would thread through the series but otherwise it was pretty much all change every time yeah and when you set about obviously getting a new new writers in you know such as Ben Ivanovich and you know Mark Platt and people like that were they friends of yours or were those people that you were aware of or they all became friends yeah. uh, and I became aware of them the way it worked is in my I'd mentioned that I was trying to become a writer and I hadn't yet succeeded how far I'd got was 
I'd written some scripts that had attracted some attention. And at the BBC in those days, there was something called the script unit. These days, there's a thing called the writer's room, which is all very posh and it has an online presence. Well, of course, the internet didn't exist. And the, the script unit basically consisted of one very nice man whose name was Tony Dinner. Tony wow. Dinner. Uh, and he sat in a tiny little office and he, scripts would be passed to him. And if he thought you had talent, he'd invite you in. And there'd be, Tony would be sitting there and there'd be a bunch of us hungry young writers sitting around. And we would read, have our scripts read aloud and we would discuss the scripts and we would get lots of lovely encouragement. But that was really it. Because yeah. Tony would try and recommend us, try to get us onto shows, but he had no clout. So in fact, it was sort of a cul-de-sac and a dead end. But it was sort of a, a meeting house for writers. And when I was there, I met Ian Briggs and Malcolm Cole and a number of other writers. But it was Briggsy and Malcolm who struck me as being uh, the right kind of writers for Doctor Who. When I sat down in that chair in Union House in Shepherd's Bush, uh, they were the names that immediately sprang to mind. I'd met more writers than that, but they seemed to me likely to fit the bill. So that's how they came into it. Uh, also, the moment I sat down behind that desk, agents began to ring me up. As soon as it became known as script editing Doctor Who and that there was another series about to launch, mm. every agent in town, well, a lot of agents, just got in touch and tried to flog me their writers. And I learned very quickly. For instance, I think it was within the first few weeks, I got a phone call from an agent and he made an appointment for me to see a couple of his writers. And then he sent the scripts through. And I read these scripts and they were all wrong. So I had these meetings set with writers who I knew I couldn't use. So the first lesson I learned was don't have a meeting until you've read a sample of the guy's work or the woman's work. Yeah. So that, you, I learned on the fly. I learned that very rapidly. And various people would come through. John, the producer, recommended writers that he liked. Mm. As it happened, I didn't really like any of them. And one of the greatest things that John did was not to impose those writers on me. Mm. The only writers he, he did impose were Pip and Jane, who did Strange Matter, a.k.a. Yeah, Rani, because he'd already commissioned them and they'd worked on the show before and they were friends of his. Mm. Other writers that he knew, uh, he, he would arrange for me to meet them or, or read their scripts. But when I said no thanks, he didn't press me on it. That was great. I mean, I still it still rankles that I had to work with Pip and Jane because I didn't like that script and I never would have voluntarily have worked with them. But beyond that, John gave me a completely free hand, which was wonderful. So other writers would turn up like um, Stephen Wyatt. He sent through a script. He, he, he also had been attending the script unit, but our paths had never crossed. Mm. And he sent a script into me and it was a script called Claws, which is sort of a pun on Jaws. And it was about the cutthroat world of cat breeders and it was great it was just really funny really witty quite nasty uh, and had this kind of uh, eccentric edge to it. yeah this guy this guy's definitely a contender and as soon as he came in he said how about we do a story set in a high-rise tower block i thought yeah so with stephen white was a very very easy uh road mm. and so that so stephen came in that way um I mentioned other writers. I got writers to send in scripts, and one of those writers was called Graham Curry, and he sent a radio script about football called Over the Moon. Right. And I knew within a couple of pages that, that he was a contender because his dialogue was so good. It was just funny and sharp. Yeah. And you couldn't, have, you couldn't get further from a science fiction television show than a radio script about a comic, <laughs> about football. But this guy obviously had something. And you see, when Graham came in, 
and I got to know him a bit. It turned out that he had a degree from Cambridge. He'd, he'd done his dissertation about the grotesque in literature. So you can instantly see how something like that might suggest to me, get my little antenna waving, thinking, ah, somebody who understands the grotesque in literature might have a bent towards the fantastic and science fictional and might come up with a really good Doctor Who, which he, he did indeed in the long run. But this has all been by way of a very extended and extensive answer to your question, which was about how I got the new writers in. Yeah, no, no, that's good. It's, it's good to hear the history of them because obviously when you get on to, to season 25, you've got four very different, you know, adventures in there. You've got, remember the Daleks, which is Ben's story, so strong, proper Doctor Who, Happiness Patrol, like you're saying, from Graham Curry. You know, he can tell he's that sort of different writer. And then Stephen, you know, Stephen White with The, the Greatest Show in the Galaxy. Again, it's all, they're all very different in... Not necessarily torn, but obviously, you know, with the, with the themes and the themes that they deal with. Um, so it's just quite interesting how you sort of got the, you know, you, you got the writers in, if you see what I mean. Yeah, well, the for the for that series, uh, just to go on to the other writers in the picture, there was uh, um, Ben Aronovich uh, was in touch with another producer at the BBC at that time called Caroline Alton. And he'd, what had happened is he'd written a detective story called The Dole Q Detective, a script. And she was doing something somewhat similar. So she got him in and had a chat to him. And somehow the subject of Doctor Who arose. She probably said, oh, there's a new, write, new script editor on the block on Doctor Who. So Ben went off and he wrote a Doctor Who spec episode. And he got Caroline to pass it to me, which is, you know, the perfectly legitimate thing to do. And so she handed me this script and I read it and I, I just flipped. It was It wasn't a perfect episode, but he was the perfect writer. I could tell that he understood science fiction. He had got Doctor Who, and he was really, really good. So that was that was just such a, a tremendous bonus. So, you know, that, that was so great news. So um, that was Ben, penciled in for the next season. And then Stephen, we brought back. Um, Graham Curry, by that time, the thing that happened with Graham is I instantly liked his script, and I thought this guy, you know, the grotesque in literature. This guy's obviously a contender. Mm. So I kept, uh, he kept coming in with ideas. He'd come with an idea and I said, no. And he'd come with an idea, no, 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 this, that, that, no, no, no. But it was better to say no right away, you know, because yeah. I, these, none of these worked. And so he began to get a bit discouraged, which was a shame because, you know, he, he's this terrific writer. And um, finally, one day he just comes to my office and he was, he was, a bit low in spirits. He just slumped in, in the chair in my office. And he said, what about a story about a planet where it's a crime to be unhappy? And I said, <laughs> yes. You see, and I could just, yes, that's absolutely, like the high-rise block, you just suddenly thought, yes, I see potential there. Yeah. And it was great, but that was, a. you see, there, those are the sort of opposite poles. Stephen White on his first meeting came up with this thing and, and Graham on his nth meeting after getting discouraged came up with something. Yeah. Uh, then we had Kevin Clark. He sent in a script called... Hmm, you know what? I'm not sure I can remember what it was called, but it was about all about a van. It was sort of like all these different people who hire this van and their various adventures. And it was really good. It was really a striking script. So I got him in. He didn't have Kevin Clark was a terrific writer, especially of things like thrillers, but he had no science fiction in his blood at all, so to speak. So I sort of I kind of had to point him in that direction and help him with that, help him with the heavy lifting of the science fiction. And he came up with a terrific script, which I, I don't think turned into a terrific show. There's a lot of problems with Silver Nemesis, but I, I, you know, in my carefree manner, I tend to blame the director and other people for those and not the script. There, there were, 
it was a terrific script and Kevin was a terrific writer. So that so Kevin came in via sending a script on spec or via his agent. So that, that's how the, those guys lined up. And I should just to mention Mark Platt. Because yeah. Mark, he's such a good Doctor Who writer. Yeah. And his approach was so classy because, you see, I got a lot of scripts through the post, obviously, most of them total duds, uh, you know, and a lot of dreadful stuff just in what we call the slush pile. But a lot of stuff came through the BBC internal post. Back in those days, there used to be these manila envelopes with a sort of grid on them, and you would write uh, a room number on it, and then it would go in the internal post, and then you'd cross out the room number and reuse the envelope, and these things would go around. And in the BBC internal post, I got a number of scripts from people who worked at the BBC, who were Doctor Who fans, who wanted to write for the show, mm. and who thought that because they were BBC insiders, it would give them the inside track. Well, I didn't hold that against them, but it certainly gave them no advantage. And I always, so I got these dud scripts through the BBC internal post, and then one day, uh, I got this script through the, through the proper post from this guy called Mark Platt. I believe it was Cat's Cradle. And it was wild and it was wonderful. And it, it had some great stuff and it was crazy and undoable. Mm. But this guy obviously had something. And I got him in. And when I got him at the meeting, it turned out he worked at the BBC. But he hadn't used the internal post. He had just approached it like any other punter. And I thought, well, that's so honorable. That's so smart. Mm. It's like not taking advantage. I just thought that was really creditable of him. I mean, it wouldn't have made any difference if he wasn't a good writer, but I just thought that that sort of added to my my immediate feeling that this guy was was a good bloke as well as being a good writer. So he was very classy about that. So we got Mark Platt on. And then the last writer of my writers was Rona Monroe. I think we've covered everybody. Anybody I missed? So Ian Briggs as well with The Curse of Fenric. Oh, no, well, the thing about Briggs was, um, as I mentioned, he came via the, the script unit along with Malcolm Cole, so I knew him yeah. from that. So that's how those guys came in. But the way Ronan Monroe came in was I was invited to a party at the BBC. What they would do is they would invite the script editors to a wine and cheese party where they'd get to meet lots of writers. And this is a very good initiative because, you know, we're the people who hire the writers. The writers want the work. We want the writers. So it was a terrific idea. But to understand this, you have to remember that when I was working on Doctor Who, Everybody hated Doctor. The BBC hated it. I'm not making this up. It was completely despised. It was a real pariah of a show. So here I am, poor Andrew, the script editor of Doctor Who, at this party with all these trendy young writers. And every time they would introduce me to a writer, as soon as they heard I was working on Doctor Who, they'd make an excuse to, to race to the other oh. side of the room. So it was a bit discouraging. And then I was introduced to these two young women writers. And I, and I said, oh, I'm script editing Doctor Who. And they both screamed with delight. Brilliant. And one of those writers was Rona Monroe. So I thought, aha, okay, well, this is, this is a good thing. And it turned out Rona Monroe was kind of a perfect writer because she wasn't writing anything at all like Doctor Who. She was kind of writing feminist comedy, right? Mm. But she was a Star Trek fan. She was a science fiction fan, so she understood the genre. So it, unlike Kevin Clark, who was a good writer who didn't have a clue about science fiction... He was a good writer who did have a clue about science fiction, which made things that much easier. And Rona, with Survival, I think, turned out one of our best scripts ever. Yeah, no, Survival's fantastic. Like I say, the last two sort of seasons um, are my favourite. So when, who were you working with when you saw, the, the, obviously, the Cartmore Master Plan? So I, I know that um, uh, Mark Platt, because he did Lug Barrow, didn't he, for the uh, Virgin Books? And that was sort of a part of the, the time. Yeah, history, well, right? what I would do, to, what I would disentangle, I suppose, here's the overlap. Somebody like Mark and Longbarrow, 
includes a lot of lore about the doctor, a lot of sort of canonical detail about the doctor and, you know, this and that. Mm. But my basic thrust was, okay, here's what we're lumbered with. We're lumbered with the notion that the doctor's a time lord. I mean, we didn't always have that notion on the show. When he first appeared as Hartnell, yeah. uh, the doctor was a complete unknown. And then gradually over the years, it turns out like that there's the meddling monk and he's a similar kind of character. And then yeah. it turns out there's a whole bunch of these guys that they're called the Time Lords. And then rather later on, it turns out that they come, the planet they come from is called Gallifrey. And, you know, mm-hmm. we get the Pridonian Academy and all this and that. And every one of these story initiatives, I think, causes the doctor to shrink and make him less, yet obviously less unique and less important and definitely less mysterious. So I thought, okay, we're lumbered with this whole background, the backstory of him as a Time Lord. I thought, how can we make him a total mystery and make him more powerful and more enigmatic and just put him back to the way he should be, give him his stature back? Okay, we'll say that he was apparently a Time Lord, but in fact he was actually there at the creation of Gallifrey. He, pre, he, pre, he existed before Gallifrey, right? Mm. So uh, I then started talking to Ben Aronovich and Mark Platt, who knew about the, the show. They knew about the details of Gallifrey and things like that. So I tried to work out within that terminology what we could do to make the Doctor more than just another Time Lord. Mm. So that was my effort. That, but that was as far as my thinking went. I wasn't really bothered about the specifics. When all that stuff about Rassilon and Omega and the Doctor, that came through conversations with Ben and Mark about the ways and means of making the Doctor bigger, more mysterious, and something more than just a Time Lord. And then we get those those hints dropped into Kevin Clark's script, oh, I'm much more than just a Time Lord, all that business, right? So the thing I've got to say is, number one, I wasn't really that bothered about the Gallifreyan detail necessary to achieve that. I just knew what my end game was. Mm. And the other thing is I didn't ultimately have any notion of what the Doctor was beyond that. You see, I didn't want to take a mystery. The mystery had been lost because they'd defined the Doctor. I didn't want to then give him a different definition because then we lose the mystery again. I just wanted to have an open question. So that's what I was working towards. And... To the, so the Cartmore Master Plan, that's what we just talked about is the minutiae of it, the boring detail. But the, 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 insofar as there was anything of a master plan, it was just to make the Doctor exciting again, yeah. make him a question mark again instead of this. You see, by the time we got to Colin Baker, and Colin's terrific. He was a very good actor and a really nice bloke. But you give him that terrible costume and also... Yeah. The, he, the, you know, the, he ends up standing on trial. You know, the, the doc, in my concept, you just couldn't get the doctor to stand still for a trial for a whole bunch of episodes. He, it just made him, fo- you know, it's putting a wheel clamp on the TARDIS. It just makes it too feeble. Yeah. So the doctor had become a bit of a victim. And, and that was, I think, symptomatic. I think that, that that occurred throughout the Peter Davison and Colin Baker era. There was a lot of stories where the doctor just ends up wandering around he, and he's he's often the, the victim, the fall guy. He's very passive. He's just a guest star in his stories. No, he's got to be really powerful. He's got to be behind the scenes pulling the strings. He has to be the prime mover, and he has to be a mystery again. Mm. You know, I, I'm repeating myself a bit here, but there's only so many ways you can say paradox, enigma, mystery, and you know this powerful, uh, vast, impressive figure mm. shrouded in, in mystery, like a mountain in the distance. And so that's what I was aiming towards. And the way we achieved it was basically, well, that was my approach. And I noticed that when Russell took over, he too understood that you couldn't, the, 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 um, 
the Time Lords were kind of an albatross around his neck uh, of the Doctor, and they were really you needed to get rid of them. So his approach was to sweep them away with the Time War, right? You, you kind of you said, you know, okay, you have the Time Lords, but now they're gone; they've been blasted out of existence. So he kind of cleared the decks in that way. I, I was working on my own way of clearing the decks and freeing the Doctor. I do feel now that the, the, the um, all these things from the past have kind of come up like like uh, ivy. You know, it's gradually suffocating a house again. I do feel that, that these days the doctor's got all these things growing up around him again and covering him up again. I feel that there's probably time for, an, uh, you know, a, a machete again to free him of all that. Yeah. And I think that'll happen at some point. It works well, and I always think it's the, the sort of not throwaway lines, but the lines, like you, like you say, are more than just the Time Lord. It's one line, but it adds so much to the character. Um, I mean, particularly in Battlefield, when it's this whole Merlin thing. Oh, I loved all that. I yeah. leave a note for himself. All that stuff's just brilliant. It's terrific. Yeah, and, and he doesn't. He, he he's behind it all, but he doesn't know. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> he doesn't really know what's going on. It's just brilliant. It's a, it's a brilliant script. I, in many ways, it didn't come off. And Ben, I know, is very unhappy with. It. He can't watch it. But I love love his script, and, and I love the intention of it. The yeah. intent of that script. Yeah, it's a fantastic one. Okay, and I think we'll cut the interview there. That seems to be a good place to stop. Later in the episode, you'll hear Andrew talking about Season 27, doing the uh, Rivers of London comics with Ben Aronovich, and, of course, his three-book deal of crime novels, The Vinyl Detective. Uh, I'm sure you can't wait. Don't fast-forward, though. There's plenty more good stuff to come between now and then. And without any further ado, why don't we get into that? to Z of Doctor Who, Part 5, E. Earthshock. Everyone thinks Adric crashed that ship into prehistoric Earth, thus causing the extinction event which put paid to the dinosaurs. But after watching the rushes, JNT pursed his lips, lit a few cigarettes, and threw a massive hissy fit. There must be no room for doubt, no possibility of survival for the little bastard. Blow the ship up in the middle of space, before it even hits the earth. Blow the ship up. But Jay, what if, thirty years from now, a business starts up creating non-canonical Doctor Who adventures on audio, and they want to do one where the fifth Doctor and Nyssa land on prehistorical Earth and discover an older, embittered and fully grown Adric, who now regards them as foes? Balls to them. Below that ship, out of the sky, I'll be in my office. Eight Doctors, the... Yeah, hi, Terence. Got an idea to relaunch the Doctor Who book franchise. What what do you mean, Virgin are doing them? I will soon sort that out. Uh, So, yeah, yeah, I wanted you to do the first one, you know, uh, Elder Statesman of the Show and all that. Something simple, popular. Just use, like, all eight Doctors in the story, but keep it simple, yeah, a little cameos or something while the new doctor um oh he's one of them again uh he can be on some sort of quest i don't know uh get his memories back yeah yeah new companion uh young blonde yeah 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 no apart from that who cares right yeah (laughs) a little bit like that 
uh, that Billy Piper who was on top of the pops last Tuesday. Yeah, just one thing. Try to just to try and scare the bejesus out of any actual new fans the TV movie might bring to the property. I want the sixth Doctor's bit to be set at the most complex and convoluted moment in the whole character's history. In the middle of the end of his trial, can we have him like freeze time and launch an investigation? into Time Lord corruption arising from his trial by a dark version of himself. Oh, and bring Rassilon back. Yeah, no, no idea. No, it just seems like it'd be a bit of a laugh. Excellent. Excellent. Okay, Tazza. Okay. Tassy bye. Bye. Eleventh Hour, the... The Eleventh Hour is the single best episode of Doctor Who ever made, and Stephen Moffat deserves a knighthood for writing this story alone. An electrifying debut for new 12th Doctor Matt Smith. No, hang on, he was the 13th. Anyway, the episode also introduced Amy Pond and her fiancé Rory Williams, saving the Earth from the dull, inconsequential village of Ledworth in an hour of perfectly performed, exquisitely written televisual perfection. In order to keep this feature even-handed, let me reassure listeners that I I can and will flag up any shortcomings if any Doctor Who episode or story is in any way below par. End of time, the... ...ing hell. End of the pier, the... A 2006 Big Finish release where Colin Baker and, uh, one of them, lands in Great Yarmouth to find the seaside town's theatre-goers enthralled to an evil immortal, the Celestial Laughmaker, played by Roy Hudd. And if the Doctor is to save the day, he must become embroiled in the ultimate battle of wits. Written by, produced by, starring and featuring Nick Not Cannon Briggs. End of the world. Some people think the world ended in the year 5.5 slash Apple slash 26 when Eccleston Fantastic took Rose to meet Cassandra and some trees in a Welsh space platform overlooking the broiling, dying planet Sol 3. I, however, would contend that the end of the world happened when I was seven and my little sister bought two packets of cola-flavoured chewits at the Shell Garage and there weren't any left in the shop for me. Enemy of the world. Everyone remembers where they were when the two missing Troughton adventures appeared miraculously on iTunes in October of 2013. I was in a hotel in Frankfurt screaming blue murder about the lack of available Wi-Fi for guests. True story. Not funny, but true. So, yeah... Uh, Beach sequences, dual roles, Troughton as villain, blah blah. This story is all about Colin, isn't it? The hair-trigger temper... The hair. The costume. I just can't take my eyes off of the guy. You'd have thought the director might have had a word, but the director, Camless Dugfield, was new to TV and thought he was making a show called Colin Who. However, the show did well enough that the BBC broadcast it before burning the negatives at the first opportunity, and it took a man travelling to Nigeria or something and bribing a bunch of corrupt TV warehouse guards to liberate and retrieve the only copies in the world, not to be privately owned by Ian Levine. Interestingly, Levine popped up in a 1997 retrospective about the JNT era of Doctor Who, which, by a staggering coincidence, was also called... Colin who? Irato. Naughty old Tom. I've shagged worse.
Eric Roberts. A divisive figure in fandom, US movie star Eric Roberts played the master opposite Lovely McGann in the ill-fated 1996 Doctor Who TV movie, which was called the 1996 Doctor Who TV movie. Among many, many things that people whinged about was that the master was American and didn't have a beard, and that this was a perversion of all that is holy and Philip Siegel must die. Nowadays, the master is Scottish and a woman, and no one seems to care, which shows how far attitudes to gender fluidity have come in the last 20 years. But I digress. Roberts was derided for portraying the master as being evil, sinister, duplicitous, arch, knowing, and occasionally highly camp, which is a bit like deriding Jennifer Ennis Hill for being quite nifty at athletics. Eric went on to be in The Dark Knight, one of the best films ever made, which was hopefully of some slight solace to him after the three failed suicide attempts in response to scathing letters of condemnation in the pages of DWM. Just kidding. Eric Roberts probably didn't give a shit. Eric Saywood. Much is written and spoken about how awful Doctor Who became under the script editorship of Eric Saywood, and not all of this comes from J.R. Southall. Sayward's era is typified by the show lurching towards adult themes, greater violence and less playful humour. With the benefit of hindsight, you could argue that the, if this wasn't the slot the BBC were aiming for with 80s Doctor Who, they shouldn't maybe have scheduled it against Buck Rogers' The A-Team, Robin of Sherwood and so on. Saywood had previously written a radio play featuring highwayman Richard Mace, who went on to feature in The Visitation, Saywood's first story. And the play apparently um, was enough to convince J&T that Saywood was the man, uh, with not only a massive, incredible track record in writing for TV, (coughs) uh, but also with the requisite detailed knowledge of Doctor Who's rich history. (coughs) Yeah. Saywood, in fairness, was to come to need this, with the uh, enormous demands to feature increasingly obscure elements of the continuity of the show into uh, the sort of current series that he was overseeing. He even stuck around during the Colin Baker era, when many would argue he was now facing a losing battle working on a show so blatantly being washed up a certain creek without a certain instrument. He tried not to let his frustration at working for JNT show in his writing, which included acid baths, hangings, cell mutation experiments, executions by laser, cannibalism, poisonings, stabbings, cyanide, and a man having his hands crushed. Nowadays, we might call this a cry for help. He famously resigned towards the end of the writing process for The Trial of a Time Lord and immediately set about dishing the dirt on how the show was run during a lengthy interview with a fanzine. Since this, Eric has worked on... um, 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 E-Space. Halfway through season 18, the TARDIS slipped through a charged vacuum emboitment a word I've only seen written down before you write in and tell me I might have mispronounced it, and became trapped in a sort of weird parallel universe from which there was absolutely no possibility of return for at least three stories. This was a a once-in-a-lifetime trip into a new universe, which was, to all intents and purposes, much like our own, as the Eighth Doctor found when the same thing happened to him. And the Tenth Doctor... 
but he was only away for two episodes, which was... Sh- I, I, I digress. The fourth Doctor was radically affected by being in a different universe, using the side trip as a break from the norm, during which time he got shot of the trouble and strife, picked up a young boy on Alzarius, and gave some old bat a damn good impaling. Happening on a way back into our universe, the TARDIS promptly re-emerged. The show, shorn of the trappings of the past, streamlined and ready for new adventures, with a cast who couldn't make eye contact with each other. Evolution of the Daleks <laughs> Fucking hell. Exelon a planet from the John Pertwee story Death to the Daleks. Exelon was home to some chanting stone druids, some helpless Daleks, angry Brits abroad in flared trousers, and a sentient city which looked like a toothpaste factory and could only be traversed by solving a series of riddles, clues and challenges, a bit like the Crystal Maze, if the Crystal Maze had been set in an old toothpaste factory. The planet also drained all the life out of anything that ever went there which is why Exelon is now twinned with Dover. Why, hello there. It's me, you don't recognize me? Lex, I'm just sitting here across my fireplace in my velvet upholstered chair, uh, enjoying just a daydream I had of a time a month ago. I went to a place called Oak City Comic Con in Raleigh, North Carolina, and I met the most extraordinary people. They told me of their best Doctor Who experiences, their worst And catchphrases. Who doesn't love a good catchphrase? What's that you say? Fantastic? Indeed. It was fantastic. First want to thank, if you are one of those people that I met at the Raleigh uh, Comic Con last month, uh, thank you for talking with me and for checking us out, for listening to the Doctor Who show, um, or possibly your narcissistic interest. All are greatly appreciated, and well done. You were as fabulous as you thought you were. And if you're not one of these people, I'm sure you'll get something out of it. They have some interesting points of views. And, uh, yeah, so sit back, relax, um, as I casually make gestures with my smoking pipe and offer you, um, a bowl of jelly babies. Behold, Oak City Comic Con. Hi, welcome to the Doctor Who show. Um, what's your name? Uh, I'm Michaela. And Michaela, you are dressed up as the. I'm dressed up as Osgood, but I'm not telling which one. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. That's the way Osgood should be. Um, I have a question for you. What is your favorite Doctor Who episode? And the first one that comes to mind, because it's hard to be accurate right on the spot. Um. That, yeah. I guess Blink, which is probably what a lot of people say, but that's, like, the first one that I really watched to get into it. Um, And, like, I did watch it with my dad off and on when I stayed up late enough, but, um, yeah. When you were younger? Yeah, when I was younger. Wow. Yeah. 
So what's the, what was your first doctor um, ever that, uh, exposure? Uh, my first Doctor Who exposure ever was when we would watch like the old rerun reruns. Um, wow. My dad had a lot of like VHSs. That's very fortunate. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. Okay. And my other question: um, your least favorite? I like them all. Like a lot of people, I don't know. I, I like all of the episodes, even like the Unicorn and the Wasp. Which is about like giant bees. I love that. One. So that one's such a good one, and people are like, "It's so bad." What about Sleep No More? Uh, Sleep No More. I mean, I like it. It was kind of weird, but yeah. I liked it. <laughs> yeah. um, and um, do you have a Doctor Who character, just a catchphrase or an impression you could just throw at me right now? Um, get in the mood. Just like the moment. Shh. Hands over inhaler. <laughs> <laughs> I wish I could have a visual for yeah. that. that That's why I said it. <laughs> that was perfect. Yeah, thank, thank you so much. No uh, What's your name? Uh, Tim Lewis. Hey, Tim. Hi. And you were dressed up as the? Fourth Doctor. It is an excellent costume. Really well done. Thank you. Thank um, you. I was wondering if you could tell me your favorite episode and least favorite episode. I know it's hard to do, but, you know, like, first thing that comes to mind. Uh, well, my favorite story from the entire series yeah. is Genesis. Uh, of the Daleks. Okay. That's classic. Tom Baker's story where we first see the Daleks come around. Least favorite story? Oh, I don't know. That's tough. Um, probably somewhere during the Colin Baker period because I, oh. I kind of quit watching during those years okay. and then picked back up with Sylvester McCoy. Oh, okay. Um, so there's probably several of those episodes I've not even seen. I haven't gotten there yet. I'm still in the yeah. third Doctor. Okay. I've heard. I've heard. You're not alone yeah. there. No, he kind of comes... They kind of tried to make him completely different, so he came along as kind of grumpy and a little unlikable. But, yeah. Uh, I've heard that. But, yeah. So. Okay, so probably one of those from that probably era. Probably from that era, yeah. Okay. Thank you. Um, and could you leave me off with a character impression, a catchphrase? Hello. Would you like a jelly baby? Very good. Thank you very much, Tim. I'm a fellow Doctor Who fan, and I'm on a podcast called The Doctor Who Show, and I was wondering if I could ask you a couple questions about your favorite episode and your least favorite episode. Oh, how about that? Do you think you can do that? I know it's a hard question. Maybe the first one that comes to mind. Um, one of my favorite episodes is The Tenth Doctor. It's with the tenth doctor. Oh yeah. And it's with the half. The half? Mm-hmm. Which one is that again? Uh I think it's the doctor's daughter. Yeah. Oh. Yeah. That's, that's a fun one. one. Yeah. And then Thank you. my least favorite one. Hmm. That is a good one. Oh, I haven't thought of that. The least in a favorite while. one. What's the least favorite one? Hmm. Uh, can there really be a least favorite one? When Rory <laughs> and Amy die. Um, oh, that is sad. And I can't remember the name of that one. Well, they don't really die. No, they not just really. kind of go away. They just yeah, go back but... in time a little bit, right? But I named my hamster Rory after That's awesome. Rory. Speak really? out of a window. That's great. You named your hamster Rory? <laughs> Rory, yeah. What does he look like? Does he have a big nose? Well, unfortunately, yeah. he's gone back in time, too. So. <laughs> 
Well, good for him, I, also, I guess. It, it, one of my other time. favorite episodes is The Cube. When, the Cube? I love when, that one. Uh, the 11th Doctor's with Amy and Rory and um, Rory's dad, and they're all messing with The Cube. It's so Oh, fun. Dinosaurs yeah. on that a Spaceship. Yeah. Was that Dinosaurs oh, on a Spaceship well, or was that the other one? one. No. Okay. The Cube. No. The dad is in that one. The dad is in that one too. That's yes. right. Brian. Yeah, but Brian. I don't remember you. the doctor. I don't okay. remember the actor's name either. Um, thank you. Those are awesome. Wonderful. <laughs> wonderful right. responses. I just was hoping you could leave me off with some kind of character impression, a catchphrase. Um. Always you... press buttons. <laughs> that is fantastic. Thank you so much, Lydia. Nice to meet you. <laughs> Carry on. All right. That's all right. So hi there, Amanda. Right? Yes. Um, and describe what you're wearing. I am wearing my Doctor Who scarf, my Doctor Who T-shirt, and my Union Jack earrings. Clearly a Doctor Who fan. Yes. What is your favorite episode? First one that comes to mind. Uh, first one that comes okay. to mind is probably the Day of the Doctor, just because it combines all the good things about Doctor Who and all my favorite doctors and companions. Uh, just a really good special, good feels, great for the fans. Just all around great episode. Yes, I agree. <laughs> and your least favorite? Oh, End of Time. End of Time. Yeah. Which one's that again? The end of time was the one where Rose went, right? Doomsday. Yeah, that okay. was the one where we lost Rose. Yeah, she was my favorite Epic companion. And Daleks? No, to a parallel universe. Parallel universe? There was different last one. unreachable. Well, not necessarily the last one. She came back. She came back. Yeah. Okay, but like... Yeah, last time we saw The false her. last one. Okay. Right. Got to review what these episode titles actually are. Yeah. Thank you so much. Um, before I go, I was wondering if you could leave me off with a catchphrase. Oh, character imitation, whatever you got. <laughs> Fantastic. <laughs> Excellent. Thanks very much. Hi. Yeah. I've been chasing you down for the last hour, believe it or not. I saw you cross the room, or auditorium, or whatever you want to call this place. I'm part of a podcast, and I was wondering if I could ask you some questions. Okay. Awesome. Well, um, first, your name, and describe what you're wearing. Okay, my name is Jane Willer. I'm actually wearing the Bleaser version of the 10th Doctor, as portrayed by David Tennant. A very good description, and the best 10th Doctor here. Um, congratulations. Thank you. Thank yeah. Um, could you tell me what your favorite Doctor Who episode is? One that you could watch 10 times over. Ah, let's see. One more. Well, Doomsday is one of them. Fires of Pompeii. You're not the only one to say that. Good one, good one. Okay. And um, then your least favorite. There's one that we do not talk about in season two. Fear her. Fear her. Yeah, I agree on that one. Forgot about that one. Probably a subconscious um, Not my best moment. Not my best moment. Not your best moment. It's okay, doctor. It's okay. Thank you very much. Um, and to leave me off with a catchphrase, what would you do? Alonzi? Excellent. Thank you very much. Awesome. Awesome. My awesome. last interview of the day. Thanks so much for listening to our pod test, whatever that is. Uh, take care, everybody. And special thanks again to Michaela, Tim, Amanda, Lydia, and Jane. It was great meeting you guys. Bye. Hello, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to The Letter Lords. Hello there. 
<laughs> Bob, I was I was waiting for Count Dracula's uh, <laughs> evil laugh, and it, it didn't, didn't really happen. Come. Yeah, my catchphrase has stopped. You can only do a catchphrase four times. We've done it now. So, hello, I'm Bob Fleming. <laughs> I, was, I wasn't aware of that rule. I think people of hello, hello weren't aware of it. Either. It's written throughout time, Jim. Um, I'm Bob Fleming from Prog to Who podcast. And I'm Jim Cameron from the Crinoid podcast. And together we are the Letter Lords. We are exactly that. And uh, the letters we should be looking at today are, as always, from Doctor Who magazine. And terrible. This, and, yeah, not so good, but we'll, uh, we can see what... If we can make a silk purse out of a sow's ear. <laughs> so we're on uh, edition 1,349, and apparently <laughs> Joanna Lumley is now Doctor Who. and it's the, For the third time. The, for the fourth time, actually. Uh, and it's, <laughs> it's the year 2074. So that's nice. Um, but I have to... Sorry, this is... A, to be, we, oh, we, we do facts, don't we, on this show now. Uh, it's 499, and it's the June edition of uh, Doctor Who magazine. And the cover has distracted me, Jim. Yeah, Target novels, man, are awesome. Are they not? Am I right in saying this? I think I am. Well, I don't think that's even an opinion. That's just simply a fact. It is an absolute fact. And the covers, I just adore the covers. And it's just full of them on this. It's like covers on cover on this uh, (laughs) (laughs) this shiny magazine. They look great, don't they? Yeah, they're they're a beautiful thing. There's been that um, exhibition, isn't there, in in London? Yeah. Which I haven't got to, but... uh... Not living in London anymore, but uh, yeah, I bet that was uh, tons of fun. It may still be on. Yeah, but it just looks stunning. I'd, I'd happily have like a full wall dedicated to every single front cover of Target novelizations from the dawn of time. But the race, you, you see them a bit like people doing them, nipping up on Facebook and stuff, don't you? Of um, New Who. A mock up. Yeah, a mock up of New Who and bits like that. And they look, it just looks ace. Yeah. There's a certain way you're doing it, and people have the knack, and when they have the knack, it looks nice. So we're talking about letters in Galaxy Forum. <laughs> now I've got after the cover. And we're going to come, first of all, Jim, to an email from Sally Davies. And she says, Although I'm looking forward to hearing the new adventures of the Doctor and Donna, what my friends and I would really love are new adventures featuring the dream team of the 10th Doctor and Rose. Please, Billy Piper, come back soon. Do you think she typed it in that voice? Yeah. <laughs> Well, I'm not a fan of Billy Piper. I'll be honest with you, Jim. Mm, yeah, I, I thought she was very good in the you know the Eccleston series. Um, yeah, the pair of them, her and, her and uh, the tenth Doctor, got unbearably smug. But that was kind of the point, wasn't it? Because they got to come up and sit at the end. It doesn't make it any easier to watch. No, it was horrific. I like I agree with you. Eccleston and her were brilliant together, and then it mm. just got relentlessly smug. And then when she kept coming back, it was really irritating. And it's annoying because I loved Rose in the first series. And I think Billy Piper's awesome. I think she's mm. a great actress. But no, I wouldn't like to see her back. But talking of new companions that Rose is not, um, <laughs> we have we actually can now... <laughs> Seamless as ever, Bob. <laughs> oh, it's... Have you heard Prog to Who? The links are horrendous. But we'll... <laughs> I heard a terrible grinding of gears as you there moved we go. between subjects. In... We've gone from first to fifth. And... We've got a new companion, Jim. We have. We can talk well, about not yet. Now. Yeah, I think in about 2018, we'll actually see her in action, won't we? Yeah, 2018. I'm, I'm exaggerating, of course. When Joanna Lumley's Doctor Who. <laughs> 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 but yeah, what, do you, what, what, what are your thoughts? Well, I liked her. I thought she's quite refreshing. Yeah. Um, she seems quite different to the ones we've had of late. There is a little bit of Donna in there, I think. Mm. Uh, but quite a hefty dose of Ace, I thought. Um, even you know some of the kind of line reading of, of some of the script she was given reminded me a bit of uh, Sophie Aldrin. Yep. 
yeah, I'm, I'm looking forward to seeing her in action. There's a slight, um, well, I've heard conflicting reports about the actual clip that they showed. Mm. Some are saying it was just set up, you know, just as a kind of audition piece sort of thing for, for us to see her in action. Mm. But the BBC officially, I, I believe, say that it is part of a forthcoming episode. Really? And I have read that in several places now. Radio Times asked as well. Radio Times Radio. were wrong, though, as well, because they, they seem to have been a bit, um, what's the word, what Moffat does all the time, lies, <laughs> or, <it's>, or misleads. <laughs> well, um, so they did that thing on Twitter where they released the name of the new companion, and it obviously wasn't, and such. <laughs> so I, I don't, like, it's weird not trusting the Radio Times, but I don't feel I can, you know, if that's... Yeah, I don't think I got this from them. I think, actually, I think official you know, BBC website sources, I've seen that, but... Uh, yeah. Wow. Or did I dream it? Could have been a dream, Jim. Could have been a dream. Um, well, if it is, it is great. I mean, I really enjoyed the little, the mini clip. And I thought it was Ace, you know, really Ace way of introducing her. Um, and yes, she reminds me of Ace too. And I've got an inkling she's from the 80s, like Ace. I think it'd be Ace if she's from the 80s, don't you? Ace. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I think I'll have to set the Ace count to see if we fit 2000 yet. <laughs> well, I think the 80s is a good era to have an assistant mm. from because people still know about stuff from the 80s and it's like so if she's from victorian times she'd be going oh my god what's 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 there the telephone you know like and stuff like that whereas what's that horseless carriage <laughs> yeah, that so it's a bit too extreme but you can you know the 80s is quite a trendy era i suppose now you know it's retro mm. the 80s being retro it sounds weird saying but <laughs> it does <laughs> but especially when you get to my age but yeah so it's it's cool because you can still ask you know questions and it still makes sense to people which then makes it funny and make mm. it you know make sense at the same time so yeah it's not it's not too far removed is it you know like katarina or something like yeah. that where you'd have to explain every single thing but uh you know the differences between 80s and 80s life and you know life in whatever period she ends up with the doctor will be quite interesting i think yeah, of course you know, even on present day earth you know, there's enough uh yeah differences that would she would find puzzling and there's always that kind of fish out of water comedy isn't there with that that kind of stuff and, and, and she proved herself in this to be very good at comedy I think. exactly and you can't have an ancient greek running around just pooing the pants can you they'd just be <laughs> they'd just be scared of everything <laughs> wouldn't they my god what's not that? on a family show oh my god what's that you're putting white stuff in your face yes it's moisture do you know what i mean it's like everything yeah. they'd just be pooing themselves at and no it's yeah, so yeah, pooing it's... then jim because i know this is a family podcast mm. yes, <laughs> I, I think that's one thing we've never yet seen <laughs> on doc two and i hope it remains that way yeah. but um yeah, I mean, this is a funny clip, isn't it? Yeah, which is a good way to introduce and you know to get you to warm to somebody quickly. But um, of course, unless Moffat goes for a massive, complete change of direction for his last series, you know, it won't all be comedy. I don't suppose. So I'm hoping she can do the uh, you know more serious stuff. Well, have you seen that clip of her on the Doctors? They've kind of done a montage of all the different scenes no. in that episode of the do- of Doctors, you know, the daytime. No, soaps. because I don't like to go into I I did this with Matt Smith. I looked at every little bit of footage I could because I, I, I didn't even know who he was when he was announced as a Doctor. And as soon as he was, I was like, yes, that's Doctor Who. And as soon as she was announced, I saw the footage of her. I was like, yes, that is a Doctor Who assistant. Mm. I don't want to trail through little tiny bits of acting that she's done. I just want to... Well, you won't, you won't find much of it. She's, no, <laughs> she's ended up Two, that's, two bits of TV. That's what I love about it, that I've never heard of it. You know, uh, Pearl, is it Pearl Mackey? Yeah. Exactly. I'm not, she's not even embedded in my brain yet. Um, yeah. Which is nice because it, it you, you go into it and you don't know what to expect. And that's what I'm doing 
with the company. It's like a new, it's like getting a new doctor that you've not heard of, like Matt Smith. And it's it's going to be a nice journey, and I just want to just do that with fresh eyes, really. Well, my eyes aren't quite so fresh because I've seen these doctors' clips, and and uh, well, I should say to start with, the script is absolutely appalling. Stuff <laughs> what doctors? What she's got to do? <laughs> I know, surprising no one. An afternoon, but... an afternoon <laughs> soap opera. It's rubbish, is it really, you? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, this is the script she's got. I mean, it's, it looked like it was cobbled together in a some sort of a improv between 15-year-olds you know, oh, at school or something because it's the most hackneyed thing I've ever seen. But and she she and, and the act- other actress dealt with it you know, as well as could be expected. Yeah. She was fine, completely different to how she has been portrayed so far in yeah. Bill, but then yeah, obviously she's a she looks, versatile she, actress. She looks like she's going to be a lot of fun. She, def- she, she looks like definitely a good actress. Um, mm. She looks cool. I think seeing her as herself in interviews, she just seems like a really, really nice person, which I think if you're genuinely a nice person, it'll reflect her in you as an actor as well. So I'm I'm genuinely excited. I know that you sort of point me towards people being uh, racist, pretty much. Well, I got it kind of secondhand. Um, it was actually Phil from the Who's He podcast yeah. posted something, something up about you know how he'd come across some people saying some racist stuff. And I have since I've seen some stuff from... Readers of uh, the Mail, <laughs> idiots. Yeah, not really worth listening to anything they say. They were banging on about, yeah. Oh, yeah, this is uh, you know PC gone mad or something. You know, then we've got a mixed race companion. It's, crazy, or well, it's absolutely insane. I, I know yeah. it wasn't oh. full on racism. You know, calling the names that are horrendous, but to mm. fact, the fact to point the point out that oh yeah, like you said there. That, yeah, the fact that it's even an issue to anybody not, is it's not beyond true. me. In this day and age, yeah, but. it's like I said on Doctor on Proctor Who the other week. It's Doctor Who is a show that embraces anyone, anything, any race of be it alien or you know of any color, yeah. any creed, any religion, and it, and it, it judges you on how you act morally and ethically. Mm. It doesn't judge you on how you look, you know, what you can, your abilities or whatever. It's just that's the most frustrating thing about when people do this and it sounds like it's not Doctor Who fans which is great because a Doctor Who fan would never do that and that's why we love the show so yeah and it, well it's not even the first time it's happened either because Freema is yeah it happened with Freema as well and it's just crazy and nonsense and you're all daft and probably really and you do read the Daily Mail so <laughs> yeah, <the end> <laughs> is, uh, IQ of thought, 13 <laughs> Yes, they ought to have a word with themselves. So, yeah, I'm, I'm pretty pleased about it. I think you sound like you are too. Yeah, oh, definitely. Yeah, it should be fun. I'm looking, yeah. looking forward to We've it. We've only got two, two years to wait, so that's always good. <laughs> so I'm just going to bring us back into, into first gear, Jim. So what do you think of uh, David Tennant and Donna Noble appearing in Big Finish? Well, I, I like them as a, a partnership on TV. Yeah. I'm not the hugest uh, Big Finish fan. I mean, there's, there's nothing wrong with them. I just For me, it, it doesn't really work. I, I love the Blake Seven stuff they do, actually. Oh. Uh, but I'm not quite so keen on the on the the Doctor Who stuff for some reason. I'm quite pinned that down. But um, I'd be tempted to listen to these two in action. Yeah. Um, again, you like you said the chemistry. You know, they're great mates with each other, and yeah. you know the chemistry will come through. I think. And you know, I've given some decent scripts, and um, I'm sure it'll be you know a great listen. So I do dip in every now and then with Big Finish, and this would be one of the things I'd be interested to dip into. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, Donna's my favourite uh, new Who assistant. Like, I, I think she's great, and I love Catherine Tate. I think she's brilliant. And David Tennant's, I just love the fact he's up for it. He loves Doctor Who that much, and obviously, yeah, you think 
Yeah, they're both pretty busy people, aren't they? Oh, they? God, yeah. And it, they're going to make time. He had quite a good in that his father-in-law is the fifth doctor and still currently working on big finished projects. <laughs> yes. David, you will do this. <laughs> I can imagine. But <laughs> it's ace. It's great that they've done it and they'll they'll sell loads. It's going to be great for big finish. It's going to, like I say, sell loads and up their production values from the money they make from it. They're getting yeah. John Hurt as well on board and yeah. people like that. They feel like the two biggest things. I mean, we wait, wait a long time for Tom Baker, don't yeah. we? Yeah. And um, it, his stories, to be honest, haven't been that great, you know. And he's, I don't really dig him on Big Finish. I've sampled him. I've not fully listened to all of it, but yeah. I'm, he's a I'd, bit more like the, the bloke out of Little Britain, isn't he? Yeah, I'd rather listen to a Colin Baker or, or McCoy and McGann. He'd probably be my least choice of Big Finish doctors. Oh, really? But I'm intrigued to see what talent does with it, that's for sure. Mm. But would you like to see him with Rose at any point? Never. I can't stand Rose. Or, well, no, I'm not going to say Billy Piper because I like Billy Piper. I think she's pretty cool. But I can't stand Rose, the character now, as she is now. Well, it would have to be Missing Adventures. What they call them? Yeah, Missing yeah, Adventures. They, yeah, or Lost, Lost yeah, Stories. Lost, Lost, Lost. Yeah, that, that kind of thing, wouldn't it? Because obviously, well, their story has ended several times, <laughs> as they tend to these days. <laughs> but um, yeah, I can't see anything continuing from where they left on unless they have a handy Dr. Rose thing. Mm. But. Yeah, that's going to just be a bit too odd, I would have thought. Yeah, yeah, but I think Lost Stories would definitely work, like, yeah. That would be the way to do it, wouldn't it? Yeah. But yeah, good news all okay, around, Jim. Good news all yeah, around. Yeah, I'm sure. Yeah. I'm sure if, you know, if that would be a good, big success as well if they ever got it back. And gotcha. I don't see why that wouldn't happen at some point in the future. Hell yeah. Okay, well, let's uh, move on to another letter. Mm. Let's talk about finales. Finales. Season finales. And this... Uh, Letter is from Michael J. Billingshurst. Billinghurst, sorry. Extra, extra S. It sounds like some sort of film director. From he? Norwich. From oh. Norwich, yes. Alan Partridge Land. Mm. He says, okay, let's dispel this myth Stephen Moffat has decided to reinforce. Bad Wolf, The Parting of the Waves, was not Doctor Who's first series finale. And that's just a fancy name used by fans and publicists for what the rest of the country call last in the series. Even back in the first Doctor's era, they had an inkling they should end on the big Daleks Invade Earth story. It's just the schedulers then announced that they were going to have a break after the French Revolution story instead. By the second Doctor's era, they knew to place the big rematch with the Daleks or Cybermen just before the break. By the third Doctor's era, the producer knew to write or direct or both the season finale himself. Barry Letzelis, of course. In the fourth Doctor's era, they saved the big six-part for last. Admittedly, things went a bit awry in the 1980s, culminating in the just-show-them-in-any-old-order approach of the seventh Doctor's era, but they still showed signs of getting the idea. So, season finales, we've always had them, haven't we? Uh, not every season. No. Not every season. But no, I think... Yeah, that is certainly not the first one we've had. No, it's definitely not the first one. I think when you look back on it, I think series finales... My God, we sound we do sound American now, don't we? But yeah, it's uh, it tended to come in regeneration stories from Troughton. The, there wasn't really finale in the Tenth Planet, that's for sure. But within Hartnell, you had epics. I don't think you had finales. I think you had epics, which was the Dalek Master Plan. In fact, that was probably his only sort of um, epic or finale. It was practically all year round it, in those days. Yeah, the other it was a long yeah. yeah. Pretty much 48 weeks of the year or something, wasn't it? Something like that is a very, very short break. Relentless. But I think yeah. I think definitely finales were introduced with the war games. So it wasn't seasons, it was the end of a Doctor. I don't think there was any season finales in Pertwee. 
correct me if I'm wrong. Well, the um, Evil of the Daleks felt a bit like a, you know, back to Troughton, felt like a bit, a bit like a finale because it's supposed to be the finale for the Daleks, wasn't it? Ah. And of course, they, they uh, pick up a companion as well. So that. I suppose we've not really seen it, have we, as well? No, no. It's a bit trippy. But, I mean, War Games, my God, that feels like a finale. It's ace. <laughs> it certainly does. I love the War Games. I'm a big fan. But I know not everyone yeah, is. No, I love but it. But it's yeah. it was ten episodes of Doctor Who over two VHSs, <laughs> so it's a lot of Who for your money. <laughs> Planet of the Spiders, definitely. Mm. The whole last se- last series of Baker coming out of full circle was definitely a finale. Yeah, it was a strong sort of theme of renewal or death and all yeah. that kind of stuff. I think I think you could call the finale of the uh, Key of Time, the Armageddon yeah. Factor. That was meant to be a finale i mean it wasn't done particularly well as other finales have been done in the new series but it wasn't i think it was probably meant to be well that was a proper series arc wasn't it yeah time it does suffer from the problem of of those stories that do just feel like the last one of the season that's when you know money ran out and uh you know the last one of the season far from being something that everything worked up to and it was you know some kind of pinnacle to be aimed at yeah. was uh, you know the shoddiest piece that they produced that year so um yeah the Armageddon Factor should have been a sparkling finale to you know the first proper strict series arc but of course they'd run out of cash burn you know partly due to inflation sure stuff, but... but I think initial initial sort of finales have always been regeneration stories I think that's what what we're looking at really obviously Adrazani wow what an adventure that is yeah, you can tell it was not a finale though. In the end of the kit, was it? No, and then you had the twin. Should have, should have been. <laughs> yeah, it should have been. And you had the twin dilemma. Yeah, but, <laughs> but but yeah, I think they sort of put the big books or the emphasis on uh, regeneration stories back in classic Who, and we've had some howlers of finales in New Who, without a doubt. Mainly by Moffat, particularly series eight was horrendous, but his finales were a bit weird. Like Russell T Davies were just like crazy, all out action, boom, da da da. Whereas Moffitt's have always been the, the penultimate episodes being quite action-packed. And then the finale or the, the final episodes has been talky. <laughs> talky, it's that word. <laughs> but it's not been as action-packed. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. He's done some quite strange finales. But we've had finales throughout of all of whom, I reckon, in some shape or form. Yeah. And I think if you if you're classing them as intentional finales, I think you're looking at regeneration stories. Yeah, perhaps say with like the big, you know, like finale to a doctor's tenure rather than yeah. to a season necessarily. Yeah. Although they're often in the same place. Well, no doubt, but uh, but yeah, I, I I would concur with Mister mm. Billinghurst from Norwich. Yes. Should we move on, Jim? Let's. I'm going to uh, wash my mouth out with soap and water after I read this next letter. It's from <laughs> it's from <laughs> Joe Cassells from Suffolk. If it's okay for Trek, dot, dot, dot. I was interested to read a restoration expert Steve Roberts' comments on the work needed to create an HD version of the TV movie, Seagull X Forum and DWM 498, laboriously scanning the source film, uh, reassembling the results shot by shot, and then recreating the effects certainly sounds like prohibitive amount of work. Am I talking? These these are words and they're not making sense, but I keep talking. <laughs> <laughs> but that's exactly how dozens of Star Trek The Next Generation's were upgraded to Blu-ray. Uh, shoot, that's good enough for Star Trek, and it's good enough for Dot 2. Always Dot 2, just a pure relation compared to its US competitor. Well, I'm going to tell you a fact, Jim. Go on, I then. bought all of them on Blu-ray of the Next Generation upscales, and they looked amazing. Okay. They look stunning. I've got them all in my collection, which the minute in comparison with Dot 2 collection, obviously, because I'm a Hoovian and not a Trekkie. Well, kind of a little Trekkie. 
but they made no money <laughs> whatsoever. Yeah, that's the problem. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm kind of pleased they persisted through them and got through all seven seasons of Trek. But I was really looking forward to Deep Space Nine and Voyager and doing the same again and going on the same journey. Um, yeah. But they made no money whatsoever. But for one little film, you know, I mean, you're talking 45 minutes, in some cases an hour for an episode of Next Generation. So for one and a half hour, you know, an hour, an hour and a half of Doctor Who, it's not that much money. It's going to be worth it, isn't it? People are going to buy it. We're not talking 25 hours of television. No. So, no. so please, like, <laughs> it'd be lovely because it's like he looks ace, Jim. It looks great. Yeah, it's one of those things. Yeah, I mean, if you think, well, I'm not going to buy one of these next generation Blu-rays. You know, if I'm going to buy one, then I have to buy them all. And that, you know, the, the amount of money involved will put a lot of people off. But yeah, as you say, just one Blu-ray. I mean, I've got uh, the Spear from Space Blu-ray. It's the only you know, classic Who that can be Blu-rayed, really. Mm. And you know, I was happy to buy that story for the third time just just to to get it on Blu-ray. So yeah, I'd probably do the same if uh, the TV movie yeah. came out on Blu-ray. I've just got mine actually, my Speedhead from Space on Blu-ray because I I did my upgrading VHS to DVD and then upgrading the specials that came out. So I did everything on DVD, and I've always consciously bought all the new Who on DVD to keep my collection the same. Yeah. Um, and Mark and Craig of Pogtory were telling me, HD's ace, you got to watch HD, but it only works from the specials through to now because that's when they started filming properly. And obviously Spear from Space as well was the only one that, like you said, from the classic could work. Yeah, it was all old and film, wasn't it? So, Jim, I've sold my Doctor Who collection from the specials until Series 8, and I bought Spear from Space as well. And now I've watched this Blu-ray larky, and it's blooming good, isn't it? <laughs> Jesus, it's awesome. The, yes, the picture's very sharp. It's, but I thought it would be like, yeah, it can't be that different. Anyway, it is. So Blu-ray all the way for anything. I'm replacing all my DVDs with Blu-ray right now of Doctor, of Doctor Who. Mm. And it's well, they did the blue, they did Blu-ray versions of the stuff that wasn't filmed in HD, didn't they? You know, the early yeah, and it uh, doesn't uh, work. That doesn't work. In the early tenants. Yeah, I, I haven't seen it. I can't. I'm sure there is some improvement. Yeah. But there's some improvement if you stick a standard DVD into a Blu-ray player that upscales. So, yeah, exactly, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I don't own any of that stuff. I only own Moffat to New Who, I'm afraid to say. Well, that's the only one to want, because that's the only one, really, that does benefit from uh, Blu-ray. Because I have seen RTD era on Blu-ray, and it, you can't tell that much difference, which is why I was dubious about getting it, you know, for the, from season five on, onwards. But Craig and Mark said to me, look, they filmed it properly get it yeah. watch it and i have and it's ace it's like watching it all over again it's brilliant yeah yeah it's great stuff without a doubt so yeah give us a blue rim again movie proper you tight get <laughs> <laughs> yeah i think there's enough of worldwide market to make it work <laughs> surely not just the and me uh, i'm but well it's only an hour and a half isn't it how long can it take a couple of hours <laughs> we'll do it <laughs> tell us what to do and we'll do it can't be that hard <laughs> how hard can it be that's yeah. a typical Yorkshireman saying, and it's always really hard. <laughs> do you want to talk to? Do you want to talk about Kane and Company and you and Morgan from Aberdeen? Yes, you and Morgan from Aberdeen, as you so rightly say. <laughs> yes, um, he says, "What a great interview you did with John Leeson, DWM four nine eight. I once waited outside an event at Newcastle for five hours in the lashing rain and wind. Oh. That's Newcastle too. <laughs> before getting to meet him." Behind me was a five-year-old carrying his toy canine. His mother kept telling her son that he was going to meet the real thing. When he finally did, he cowered behind her, 
feeling that he'd been conned. <laughs> Who was this strange man, he thought. John bent down and said in his best canine voice, My name is Canine. What is yours? <laughs> oh, that's ace. The little boy gave John the biggest hug. <laughs> that day, the cynical old Doctor Who fan that I, that I was learnt from a five-year-old that when you get to my age, you can pick holes in the programme, but you forget why you loved it in the first place. That's brilliant. Hats off to Mr. Leeson. That's a lo- Hats off indeed, a lovely, Mr. Leeson. Lovely story. That's great, isn't it? Have you ever met anyone from Doctor Who, Jim? I have. Not many, actually. No? Because um, I've only I've only done about three things. Uh, four things now. We did that, had the 50th special thing down in, in London. Uh-huh. You know, the big corporate do. Right. Uh, I did the Monopticon, let's see, Manchester convention shortly before the uh, TV movie came out. I went to uh, Aldbourne where they filmed uh, The Demons. Uh-huh. When they had, it wasn't the return to Devil's End thing that was videoed. It was kind of yeah. a return to return to Devil's End because <laughs> they came back again, and uh, that was a great day. I went with uh, Martin from the, you know, my colleague from the Crinoid podcast, and uh, we, had a, we had a great day. And one of the funniest moments was uh, John Levine kept getting the five rounds rapid line wrong. Really, and Classic. Nick Courtney by the end of the day was practically blown his stack every time. Mm-hmm. <laughs> They were rounded on John Levine. No, it's five rounds rapid. That's class. So, 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 but, you know, John Levine is as mad as a balloon. Brilliant. So it's hardly surprising to think the line's right. But, the, you know, the, the, the up-close-and-personal anecdote I have, the only one, really, is Mr. Thomas Baker. Oh, big, that's a big one, Jim. That is a big mm, one. Yes, I had to pay for the privilege. <laughs> this was uh, 1999 at the Who Shop, which was in East Ham, East London, anyway. Uh, I've never beat that London town before. Yorkshire. <laughs> I don't go to that fancy London. <laughs> I've been loads, it's ass. Don't tell anyone. <laughs> well, anyway, uh, Tom Baker was uh, was peddling his uh, rolled doll light book, the uh, the boy who kicked pigs. Remember his little oh, kid, yeah. kids novel. So uh, you know, if you bought the book, you could go and get a, uh, an autograph from the man himself. Ooh. So I went in there and uh, waited in the queue. He was, uh, of course, white-haired by this time. Yeah. Uh, he was in a white shirt and his very pale Mac that you often see him in, in photographs. And he was just like this glowing angel behind this counter in the shop or some table that's set up. It was like uh, light from Ghost Light. Oh, yeah, yeah. Just, oh, just God, yeah. sat there with a Tom Baker's face. <laughs> anyway, I got the book and got it autographed and uh, I asked him what he was doing next. And he said, oh, well, I'm, uh, I'm doing the uh, Randall and Hopkirk disease with the oh, Reeves and Mortimer. Which was brilliant as well, man. <laughs> yeah, he was great in that, wasn't yeah. he? Anyway, that was, uh, I think he'd started filming or something mm. at that point. And then he said, and well, after that, I should be revving up for the uh, millennium. Yeah, it'd be so much better than the normal New Year. At least this time, no toss can say it's not as good as the last one. <laughs> <laughs> That's cool. I thought it was marvellous. I've never met, I've never met Tom Baker. Well... Get there while you can, I would say. I went to a convention. I think it was, in, well, it was in 1992. So I was a, only a young man. It was in Stockton in, well, it's North Yorkshire now, I think. But yeah, up, up north. And it was in the time when there was no who on television. Conventions were much more, what's the word? They weren't charging you to meet them. They weren't charging you for autographs. They weren't charging you for breathing. Which the, less mercenary yeah that's the, exactly right it was a lot more friendly the access was greater um, obviously now it's a totally different kettle of fish but at the convention I met John Pertwee I met Sylvester McCoy uh, I met Fraser Hines uh, and these guys were all doing their 
talks in the room, you know, the, the, the guest spots and all that kind of stuff. Never got charged for a, a photograph with him, never got charged for an autograph, whatever it was. You know, just queued up, you got your autograph. And I got told off by John Pertwee for Dawdling. Oh, yeah. I remember you yeah, saying which, which was ace. And I got my picture taken with <laughs> the, them all. And the, the best thing was about this convention, obviously it was brilliant meeting everyone. It was class. But I'd bought um, Mark Gattis' or Mark Gates's book, Virgin Novels, and he was there. Obviously, because just, this was just, just that released manner. I didn't know who he was, so I'd gone through the line and got John Levine to sign my book, and you know, Sylvester McCoy and John Pertwee and Fraser Hines and all these greats from the classic era. Then some guy I had no idea who he was. I said, "Will you sign that?" And he's so he signed the book that he'd wrote. I didn't even think twice about it. I didn't care. And it was when I was looking through my um, Virgin novels, and I, oh, Mark Gatiss signed his own book. Wow. <laughs> and I didn't care less at the time. It was like, yeah, so it was a bit of a, yeah, I apologise, Mark, because now you're massive and famous and that, but at the time I couldn't care less. Well, that would have been pre-League of Gentlemen even, wouldn't it? It was, oh, God, yeah. I mean, this was night two. Yeah. This was, oh, crumbs, yeah, all he'd done was, you know, a virgin novel, which was brilliant. Yeah. It was great, Nightshade. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, so I got him to sign that. And then went to another one. It probably would have been about, seven years ago now same convention dimensions in stockton last year in stockton so it was a bit older and it was like we're saying there it was a lot more mercenary so i had to pay 10 pound to go for a coffee with Sylvester mccoy and um lisa bauman which was lovely it was ace it was about 10 of us sat around and asking questions and stuff like that a bit more informal in the big guest rooms yeah. and at the end i went up to Sylvester mccoy and i had my photograph from 92 Right. So this is, you know, like I say, it's 2000. It's, it's a good chunk later, and I'm a lot of bigger man. <laughs> so I go up to Sylvester, and literally... <laughs> Hang on, what, what were you photographing? <laughs> you can see now, Sylvester, I'm a lot bigger than I was. <laughs> so, so I went up to him and said, oh, I just started saying it, and then some little helper sort of tried to usher me away, saying, no, you've got to pay for this. And, and it was expensive to get your picture in that take with him. And Sylvester yeah. McCoy, bless him, he went, no. No, what, what are you trying to say? What are you trying to say? And I said, all it is, me and you had a picture taken 15, 20 years ago, and this is the picture of me and you when we, when I was little and, you know, whatever, and I'd love to recreate, recreate that moment. And he went, yeah, of course you can. And he told the woman to bugger off, basically. <laughs> and so so we did two pictures. We did one with me, because obviously I was little, I was only 12, with yeah. him, me bent down with his arm around me. Not with me stood up properly. I mean, I bent round about, you know, put round him. It was ace. He was brilliant. <laughs> but he just like shuffled her off and said, no, you know, book her off. You know, we'll do this. It's it's lovely. It's a nice little tale. So it's first of all, obviously. Yeah. I said he was grumpy git. Well, two grumpy gits. <laughs> Eric Saywood. Took a copy <laughs> of <laughs> Slip. Famous for being a grumpy oh, git. There was Philip Hinchcliffe. And then there was Eric Saywood. And bless him, I'm not surprised Philip Hitchcock was a bit rude. I had the 1977 annual or something, which wasn't his era or whatever. He was grumpy. So I'm like, yeah, cheers, that's all I've got, I'm sorry. Uh, and then I give slip back to Eric Seward, who I thought would be really pleased because it was like, you know, an, an in-between Doc 2 novel that he wrote. Yeah, you're the only person who bought it. What a grumpy, wiggy bastard. <laughs> <laughs> Honestly. I can't. I think he's, he's crap anyway. So, yeah, he wasn't a joy. But Sylvester McCoy... John Pertwee, you're all ace. John Pertwee was very ill when I met him in 92. 
But he, and I'm not joking, like he persisted. You know, there was things saying, well, unfortunately, Mr. Perry's not very well, so he's going to postpone his Saturday to Sunday. And on Sunday, when he came in, he was dressed up as Doctor Who. He strolled in the room. He commanded the room. He commanded everyone. It was amazing. Like, honestly, he was really ill at the time as well. Conventions are brilliant. Conventions were better when Doctor Who wasn't on telly. Conventions are mercenary, horrible things now. And I didn't enjoy my experience with new who back on telly at a convention. I'd like to go to a lower key one where it is more like it was in the dark times when Doctor Who wasn't on telly. But 92 was ace and uh, the noughties were mercenary, horrible, money grabbing crap mm. with the same people there. But it wasn't the, it's not the stars that do this, it's the people that are running the conventions. Oh, of course. Yeah. And the agents, of course, are seeing how much money they can make per autograph absolutely like so they're, they're putting pressure on as well no doubt. but some lovely memories it's ace to have these pictures of me with my favorite doctor Sylvester mccoy and people like john pertwee isn't you know unfortunately no longer with us and picture with john levine and uh fraser hind stuff like that it's, it's ace and matt, matt gets his autograph even though i don't know who he was <laughs> brilliant yeah. well you know now that sort of counts yeah. surely in fact, he told Proctor Who off, didn't he? He did. He did tell us off. Or at least Mark. Yeah. For getting uh, oh. his title of his, his uh, what's it called? <laughs> I don't even know. <laughs> oh, uh, Adventure in Space. Yeah, yeah. yeah he told us off for that. We got it wrong. I didn't remember. Well, of course, he, he was going to play John Pertwee in that, so you were told off by the real John Pertwee. Again? Uh, Mark was told off by, <laughs> he's, he's by the fake John Pertwee. John Pertwee's coming back for me. John Pertwee hates me. Oh, bless <laughs> him. He's a grumpy man, though, isn't he, John Pertwee? Bless him, he was. In, in Doctor Who. He was a grumpy doctor, wasn't he? He was extremely grumpy. Yes. I love him. He was a, he was ace. He was such a great man. Great era as well. Yeah. yeah. Marvellous. Mm. Well, his death was an end, the end of an era, and I think uh, we've come to the end of this <laughs> era. Let's pick ourselves up. Uh, so, yes, that's us, I think, for this month. Episode four. five, Jim. Done and dusted. Yeah, herring through it, aren't we? Oh, God, yeah. Before we know it, it'll be episode six. <laughs> it'll be upon us. But, yes, thoroughly enjoyable to natter with you again. And you, sir, as always. Your big pointy finger, man. I was talking about my Skype picture. <laughs> There's nothing more sinister about it. <laughs> this is odd, isn't it? People know what we're about. Yeah, I'm not in the papers for <laughs> waving my pointy finger at people. Pleasure, Jim. Mm, take care. And we'll uh, speak to you all again next month. You will indeed. Goodbye. Bye. Welcome to the TARDIS Library, a place to talk comics novels, audios and more from the worlds of Doctor Who. Hello, my name's Matt Barber. You may have heard me on recent episodes of the Blue Box podcast. I'm here reviewing the second of three instalments of Doctor Mania, uh, the ninth Doctor um, comic strip written by Kevin Scott and the artist is Adriana Mello. This one is continuing the story of the Doctor, Rose and Captain Jack's fight against what turns out to be the Slovene in the uh, the climax of the last the last instalment. It really develops from that one in this in this one it's brings in more Raxicorico Falapatorians, um, including the Slovene, and it does it really well. I really liked it. Again, it had a, a followed a good tradition of expanding the story outwards so the first installment was set on this planet in this second one and i don't know if this is a spoiler or not uh rose is kidnapped by the slovene and and taken to the uh 
the home world of, or one of the home worlds of the Raxicorico-Phalopatorians in the Raxus group of planets, um, whilst the Doctor and Captain Jack are arrested and eventually have to convince the uh, the occupants of this, this strange world that that has uh, that has created a fandom around the fake Doctor, um, that he is the real one and they've been duped. What I liked about it, I liked the fake Doctor I'd been watching um, and writing about the android invasion recently. So a lot of my my mind has been focused on doppelgangers and people pretending to be the Doctor. Oddly, I'm also writing about the chase. Uh, so there's a there's a strong theme in classic Doctor Who of fake doctors and um, villains who pretend to be the Doctor. So uh, Enemy of the World, Megalos, uh, Android Invasion, The Chase, Massacre. In this case, the, the Slovene is in a fake Doctor skin, rather revoltingly. What I liked about this is the way the Slovene phrases things, the way he describes Rose, it's actually very classic Doctor Who. So he calls Rose his assistant. Um, and in the first instalment, obviously, we see him improbably driving the Humobile or a replica of the Humobile. So there's a there's a lot in here that's, I think, subtly kind of referring back to the classic series in just the way that the Ninth Doctor television stories didn't. And it's doing it in a, in a quite a, a smart way, I think. It's not... It's not doing it nostalgically. It's pointing out the differences between the new and the old style. What I also liked uh, was a continuing tradition in Doctor Who of gently mocking fandom. So we find this in uh, stories such as Love and Monsters in the new series, but also Greatest Show in the Galaxy, where uh, fandom is treated affectionately, but, but not without criticism, I think. I think Kevin Scott steers slightly closer to criticism. Uh, there's one moment in here where the Doctor gives a message to one of the uh, one of his fans on the planet, which is effectively uh, the same as William Shatner's fav- famous spoof message to Star Trek fans to get a life. That that veered quite close to the knuckle, but I think I think he gets away with it, mainly due to the clear affection that that the rest of the story shows, the clear affection and knowledge the rest of the story uh, shows towards the classic series. I also liked the the fact that this is a bit like a Ninth Doctor story, but exploded. So one of the one of the main things about the Ninth Doctor stories was that they were very earthbound, or at least focused around Earth or a, or a space station around the Earth. There was very little getting away from the planet and here he very much corrects it by uh, by exploring the the home planet of the Raxcorcophalopatorians, um, exploring a little bit more of this this planet that the Doctor of Jack and Rose have landed on. You get much more of a space opera feel to this, which is quite pleasing and unusual, and also gives the impression, continues to give the impression, I think, of this being a second series for the Ninth Doctor. This is the second series the Ninth Doctor never got. And it's different from Tennant's first series. So what we've got is almost like a pleasing alternate universe where Eccleston stayed on. The series got a vast amount more money. Added to this, 
the the use of the Slovene, which in the standard series has become more of a Sarah Jane Adventures standard because of their slight comic nature of, of the suit. In this comic strip, they're a lot more nuanced and they're a lot more frightening and there are quite there are a few visceral moments once Slovene is shot and effectively explodes rather revoltingly. But also the nuance extends to to the different clans of Raxicolicophalopatorians. And I'm impressed I can still say that word. I haven't been drinking vodka. Um, but it's this it's this kind of distinction between the two the two different sides of this alien race. Something slightly pert we like about that. It's the sort of thing that Malcolm Hulk would write, I think. And I think that gives a good a good rounded uh, Kevin Scott's very good at at world creation actually. And he's he's extending the world of the Slovene and the fellow families um, beyond what we've seen. And the climax of this story um, takes that one stage further. Um, I won't give away the I won't give away the cliffhanger, but everything is nuanced here, and and that's really that's really pleasing. So yeah, so I'm basically looking forward to the third instalment uh, to see how this story resolves itself. Hey, Doctor Who show listeners, it's Lex, and I'm going to talk about in a very self-deprecating way, issue two point eight of the 11th Doctor comic uh, by Titan Comics. This time, the writer is Zai Spurrier. The artist is Warren Pleece. Letterer is Richard Starkings and Comicraft's Jimmy Betancourt. I love his last name, Betancourt. That is a good last name. Colorist is Ariana Florian and Nicola Raihi. Raihi? Raihi! Um, with Azura Florian. And, I don't know how I missed this before, there is an official acknowledgement of the character Absalon Doc. And this must have been occurring for months now, and somehow I've missed it. Somehow I've just glazed right over it. And it says right there at the bottom of everything in bold letters, capitalized bold letters, Absalon Doc, created by Steve Moore and Steve Dillon, um, appears courtesy of Panini Comics with thanks to the amazing team at Doctor Who Magazine. What is wrong with me? How did I miss this? This is extremely noteworthy. Just so you know what I'm raving about, because you probably don't have any idea. I kind of feel like nobody actually reads this comic, but I do the reviews anyways. Epsilon Doc is this chainsaw, sword-wielding Dalek killer that is renowned throughout the galaxy, probably. He's a big deal. I don't know. I think he's exiled... You know, he's the character that I probably have mentioned, haven't I? He's one of the Doctor's companions now, okay? And he's been in the 11th Doctor comic for a while. And, uh, yeah, turns out he's a big deal. So probably a lot of you already know who he is if you read Doctor Who magazine. Um, for the record, I don't actually have a subscription. I just buy it occasionally if I'm feeling rich. Um, and... I looked it up, and Absalom Doc originally comes from the fourth Doctor comic, all the way back from 1980, produced by Marvel Comics. It's uh, noted that it starts on issue 17 of the fourth Doctor, Doctor Who Weekly comics, if you're interested. Uh, I think that's where Doc's character starts. 
And since I'm being so thorough today in looking things up, I went ahead and actually took out my issue of the then and the now part one of two of the 11th Doctor story. And on the last page is when Doc makes his first appearance. And indeed, the Doctor's reaction is just, and now Absalom, Doc's here. And he says, hello, Doctor, long time no see. Your face looks different. I might cut it off anyway. Yielding his chainsword. Ugh, I'm so angry with myself. But yeah, yeah, let's all appreciate this, please. And now that we've had that beautiful moment, I have something else to confess. I went to Comic-Con last month in Raleigh, North Carolina. It was great. And I picked up a certain comic from 1985, Blast from the Past, with the fourth Doctor. I, uh, to be honest, I just picked it up because it had a bunch of punk-looking tribal people with bones in their nose and mohawks and yielding all sorts of weapons like, well, chainsaws, to be precise, and then some forks and daggers. Um, It's very overwhelming and wonderful, and the fourth doctor looks horribly dumbfounded. So it was a great cover. I did that thing where I judged a comic book by its cover and bought it. Um, Plus, it's the fourth doctor, so... Obviously, good thing to do. Well, guess who hadn't opened it for an entire month? Guess who just left it on her desk? Not even taken out of the plastic covering for an entire month and didn't look at it until today to find Absalom Doc in it. He's there. I've been surrounded by him this entire time and just blind. Could I oblivious and very, very blind. But uh, this is my moment of revelation and I'm sharing it with you all, okay? And don't you just love the serendipity? Mm. Um, yeah, it's a beautiful story of Absalom Doc. The chainsword-wielding Dalek killer is now my favorite character by far. Second to the Doctor, of course. I mean, if you're an Evil Dead fan... And I know at least one of you out there is, um, you would understand all this, wouldn't you? Okay, on to the actual story of issue 2.8. Okay? Great. So it turns out Absalom Doc is not just any chainsword-yielding Dalek killer. He is feared more so than the Doctor, and they show this excellently with a bar scene, one of the classic space bars, and no, not your keyboard button, a bar full of space people. So they walk into a bar, and uh, the doctor really needs a drink, I guess. They they walk in, and the doctor's uh, very tired and frustrated. Everybody is staring at them, and... Uh, you hear murmurings in the crowd. They go like, is, is it really him? The Destroyer, he's supposed to be dead. The pitiless terror, hiss. Um, I added in that hiss. Um, 
And then the doctor says, oh, for goodness sake, not now, and says, yes, I am the doctor, and yes, I am a bit of a, you know, oh, I've lost my British accent, whatever, legendary scourge of evil and all that, and I suppose I'm probably regarded with justifiable panic in some less than salubrious quarters, but please, I'm not here on business, I just want a bit of peace, and, uh... One suspicious fellow gets up and leaves. Um, we'll get to that later. Um, and there's more murmuring. Wait, who's he? What salubrious mean? Maybe that's not the arch horror at all. Um, he's proper posh. I don't think the pitiless terror would have any truck with that, uh, with the likes of that. Um, and now the doctor goes arch horror. Not one of his usual nicknames, it's true. And then Absalom Doc steps forward and goes, excuse, and uh, addresses the crowd. Now look at the soft bags here, don't want no trouble, so y'all stay out of my way, and we'll get along just fine. You said that last time. I love this issue. It's already a 10 out of 10. This issue, there's, it's perfect. Um, going backwards a little bit, it starts off awesome as well. Um, River really gets her moment of, um, the, the obligatory, um, space mumbo jumbo techno junks talk. It starts off with, uh, a lovely picture of outer space and the TARDIS in a distance. Somebody saying, I'm confused. And then, um, River gets this wonderful speech of how she saved everybody using terms like enough gadgets to give Einstein a hernia, uh, artronic scapulator, vorticine bypass, bicofoil looking thingy which goes ping, all the classics, um, and something called a perpetual Escher gush cascade to blind. Um, temporal sensors. It's really good stuff. The the effort that must have gone into creating River's speech there must have been intense. But it's it's dead on. They they did a really good job. As for the art, River's song still doesn't really look like herself, but I think it's improved since last month. Um, the Squire is back to her old raggedy aged-looking self. No blue eyes, no pink, luscious lips. We're back to um, old and, well, old. They get their drinks, um, and they some companion drama happens. That's what really this issue is about. The doctor is so frustrated, he becomes a real jerk to everybody, and Alice doesn't feel wanted anymore. Uh, the squire leaves because she feels like she's getting in the way, or is just not helping him like she should be. And um, the then and the now comes back as usual. And that's after the doctor lets slip that Alice has a thingy in her neck that he knew the whole time and just never bothered to tell her. So yeah, as, as I was saying, the TT and the TN, that's the new nickname for the then and the now. The TT and the TN finally arrives and they have to run away. Um, the squire gets left behind, increasing the companion drama going on, but Absalon Doc is really leading the way now in terms of finding out, um, the puzzle, you know, finding out what's going on with the accusation of massive genocide that the doctor's accused on. So he's, he's the one with the lead right now because of this mysterious fellow he had a discussion with who, um, he's like a, a Dalek, 
um, aficionado, a Dalek collector of sorts. So they're uh, back on uh, on a mission. They have a goal in sight. The Daleks are looking mighty suspicious now. This is definitely going to have some kind of Dalek-y ending. I mean, it has to. Absalon Doc is now super important, and he clearly is going to save the day. All right, we'll see. And so it all ends with them on the TARDIS, and River happens to look outside to see uh, the Malignant, which is now turned into the size of a planet. It looks like a Death Star, but its innards, its structural innards are all exposed. It's basically a bunch of junk put together, but evil-looking. It has tentacles, really large tentacles, sticking out of it all over and um like a cherry on top it's got a giant skull with a dagger in its head this is the malignant um and that's how it ends to be continued uh yeah so 2.8 10 out of 10 now on to issue 2.9 this issue is um beautiful. Leandro Casco is back, and it's definitely him. The guy that I mentioned two comic reviews ago, Leandro Casco in issue 2.7, I said I wanted to watch out for him. He's back, and it's it's him. The same wonderful, beautiful artistry is back, and it's got to be him. So now I have uh, a comic artist to fangirl over, and I'm really happy about it. Yes, thank you. It's a huge milestone for a comic book fan. Now for a proper introduction of this issue. This one's titled Running to Stay Still. The writer is Cy Spurrier, artist Leandro Casco, letterer Richard Starkings, and comic crafts Jimmy Betancourt, colorist Rodrigo Fernandez. Absalom Doc, created by Steve Moore and Steve Dillon. Yes. Um, what else? That's it. Okay. Yes. Good. Carrying on. God, it's beautiful. It's like, yeah, it's a proper comic, but it's just so much more than that. Like, I, when you say comic picture, you know, you think maybe more two-dimensional, minimalistic, simple. There are lines, and then you fill them in. This guy makes real-world, three-dimensional, moving and breathing people. It's so pretty, and uh, there's so much life in it. There's the wonderful... It's actually caused me to lose the ability to speak. It's No, but... So he's able to make things look real, and yet there's so much style in it. Style being the opposite of realness. Like, he'll... I'm looking at one picture right now, and it's all sort of tinted purple and blue and pink and really cool colors. So he's definitely altering reality, but it just, it feels more real. And, you know, he'll do things like not give anybody pupils. Love it! Um, so the story. Basically, now that the malignant has appeared, River Song's life is in danger, and the Doctor and Alice and... Absalon Doc. And Doc, by the way, is spelled D-A-A-K, not D-O-C, like short for doctor. Um, though the way it sounds, that is interesting. 
and suspicious. But yeah, just wanted to clarify. D-A-A-K. Doc. Right, so the malignant is there. River Song's life is in danger. The doctor's relationship with his companions, with the exclusion of Absalom, because he's just, he's a different thing altogether. But um, yeah, Alice and the squire is rocky. They, uh, they've put the doctor in one of his, like, dark moods again. He's all moody, which is has always annoyed me. They do it too much. It's very unlike the doctor, I I think. But yeah, so he's in one of these moods, and at least I can say I think it's the most, it's the best way they've done it so far. Like, it, this mood that he's in now actually doesn't bother me as much. Um... To save River Song's life, they put her in a stasis cube <laughs> along with Absalom Doc's wife, which um, he's really angry about, we see in one large picture of him that also happens to be the title page. Um, but yeah, it's just the doctor sitting on the floor thinking, and meanwhile Absalom Doc is pointing in shock at uh, the stasis cube that is now holding not just River Song, but his wife, uh, who he's been searching for this entire time. It was just sort of a funny way to reveal where his wife had been the whole time um, as a means to save River Song. So yeah, they have him pointing at his wife in the stasis cube, yelling at the doctor, and instead of the normal expeditives you see, daggers, crossbones, lightning bolts, more lightning bolts, and bombs. No further Absalon Doc. Translation needed. From there, the doctor with Absalom Doc and Alice go to a planet, a planet that appears to be sliced in half. You can see the inside of it has layers, like an onion, or a gobstopper, or a jawbreaker, one of those things. Um, it's very lava-y looking, and uh, I guess... But yeah, they go there to follow the clue of exterminate, and they do indeed see that on a wall there, um, which was significant. But then that moment of, um, that aha moment, is completely disrupted by the squire. She's back. She harpooned the then and now, which of course is still chasing after them, um, as a means to get back to the doctor. And then, in her moment of uh, triumph, she... Um, kills the then and now, or sort of does, but uh, it gets her immediately afterwards while it's in the process of dying. Um, so she's in a state of medical urgency, and the doctor takes care of her. Meanwhile, Alice and Absalon, they go back to the Master's TARDIS, and they get the idea to apply these bugs to it. Um, in these bugs, they first saw a couple issues ago when they were on like a really old version of Gallifrey, maybe. Um, they're these time time vortex bugs. They're split in half, and yet they somehow remain together. And what else? Oh, yeah, they have pheromones, and they have here in this issue a flashback of the Doctor saying, it's their shells, see? Carcinogenic and Artronic. And so they apply these bugs' shells to the Master's TARDIS, Alice doesn't want to do it. Doc, it's not nice. Fine, gimme, I'll do it. And she throws up in the corner, and Absalon says, Huh, never heard a TARDIS scream before. After that, Alice decides it's time for her to go, because she is a liability since she has that thing on her neck, and the, t the then and the now is attracted to her. She puts a gun on Absalon Doc, shoots him with something, and he's crippled, lying on the ground. She says, I'm sorry, and he says, Wait, no, wait, and she just goes in the Master's TARDIS. Off to save the day, apparently. 
And that just leaves us with Absalom Doc on the ground, crawling with his arms stretched out, saying, no. And in the foreground, we see the doctor, and he's just come out of the TARDIS. Um, he's crouching, saying, responding to Doc, though having no idea what he was actually talking about, saying, yes, I'm afraid so, which doesn't say so well for the squire. It's been an interesting uh, story. This issue has been really good. A lot happens. So this makes the second issue in a row that I've thoroughly enjoyed reading, which leads me to give it a 10 out of 10. Again, my second 10 out of 10 in a row. Am I second guessing myself? No. No. These issues are as good as it gets. And um, yeah, good job, Titan Comics. I think it's about time that I left now. Thanks for listening, everybody. I totally sabotaged this podcast. Lex Overload. See you guys in a month. Or, you know, speak to you guys in a month. Bye! Hello again, and welcome to my little shelf in the comics section of the Doctor Who Library. Lots to get through this month, so let's crack on with the first of my reviews, which is the 12th Doctor issue 2.4, the final part of Clara Oswald and the School of Death, by Robbie Morrison and Rachel Stott. Last time, it had been revealed that the Sea Devils, or a bland-looking offshoot of them anyway, had been disguising themselves as humans, including the Prime Minister. They'd been transforming Scottish schoolchildren into hybrids, and now our heroes are trapped in the school as super-advanced Sea Devil weapons rise from the depths to begin the takeover of the world. How does the Doctor and his young companions get out of this one? Well, quite easily, it seems, thanks to the concealed neural enhancers that allow them to fling the monsters around like rag dolls and animate suits of armour. I guess that must be what was in that suitcase the Doctor had in last issue. Handy, really. In the midst of their escape, the Doctor gets a call from Kate Lethbridge-Stewart, who in her usual fashion has only just got up to speed with the crisis. The Doctor warns her not to engage the Sea Devils, invoking his presidential authority, before running off leaving Clara, Jack and Lucy at the mercy of the creatures and their semi-human slaves. It's okay though, he's back in the flash in the TARDIS, using it as a transmitter to relay the frequencies of the sonic screwdriver and make the Sea Devils effectively seasick. Um, that would be the sonic screwdriver he's not meant to have at this point in the Series 9 continuity, right? The sonic screwdriver that he wasn't meant to have last issue either. Anyway... We then get a final showdown between the Doctor and the Sea Devil leader, Homo Reptilia Trident against Sonny the Stuffed Swordfish, before the Doctor defeats them by... Um, well, and this is where it all starts to go very wrong for me. Because the Doctor turns the tables on the Sea Devils by... Wait for it... Using the sonic screwdriver to reverse the pulse of the disruptors so they target the island instead. Yes... The sonic screwdriver saves the day. Again. It's so dull and unoriginal. The monsters fall into a chasm as the island breaks up and sinks into the ocean. Except... They're sea devils. Surely they're at home in water. I know I mentioned this point in a previous review, but it's worth hauling it out again when the key to defeating them seems to be repeatedly... Get them a little bit wet. To make matters worse, the Doctor avoids his own watery grave by being rescued by Clara, who can apparently now fly, thanks to her neural enhancers. 
the impossible girl performs yet another amazing feat and saves the Doctor again. If I saw this on television, I think I'd have my head in my hands by now. It's a hugely disappointing ending to a pretty lacklustre adventure all round. I know I might bang on about it, but when you can do anything in comics, why settle for this? Remember that, that bit with the Doctor versus the Space Pirates from issue 1? That's what I would have rather have seen. I certainly wouldn't have made this story the first one in a relaunch series. Look, there are positives. The art from Rachel Stott is, as always, very good, with a lovely spread of biomechanical mayhem at the start, and some unusual panel layouts. The facial expressions and the outfits are as much fun as last issue, although the Twelfth Doctor does look like he's wearing his second incarnation's trousers. Cover-wise, there's a lot to be said for the Simon Myers album cover homage. This time it's Blondie's parallel lines. But for once, the winner is the photo cover by Will Brooks. And there's a few good Doctorish quips in the script and a couple of possible clues to a future storyline. But generally, and I really do hate saying this, there's nothing here we haven't seen many, many times before. The next issue blur promises a two-dimensional terror and hints that it could be a story to break the fourth wall somehow. We'll see. It can only be an improvement. One final thing to mention before we move on. Remember last month when I praised that double-page flashback sequence of the third Doctor's previous encounters with the Sea Devils? Well, it looks like someone else thought that a third Doctor series would be a good idea. As Titan have just announced a new mini-series starring the Pertwee incarnation, along with Joe Grant and the Unit family. It's to be written by Paul Cornell with art by Chris Jones. And you can guarantee that one of us will be reviewing it here on the Doctor Who show when it comes out in August. On to the second comic of the month. Issue 2 of the 4th Doctor miniseries. As a reminder, it's Gordon Rennie and Emma B. Beyond the Writers with Brian Williamson on art. We're in Victorian London, where giant cyclopean creatures are on the prowl and the Doctor meets Professor Odysseus James expert in chrononautology, time travel to you and me. But Sarah Jane is at the mercy of the sinister lady Emily Carstairs, who has shown her a frozen statue of herself thousands of years old. How did Sarah Jane get like that? Hopefully we'll find out. Actually what we get in the first half of this issue is loads of exposition. The doctor's in the carriage with Professor James and his daughter, Sarah Jane is taking tea with Lady Carstairs, and flitting between the two narrators we're told how the pair first met. It's a tale of scientific discovery, a woman's grief at the loss of her family, and a mysterious device called the Lamp of Kronos. There's a lot going on here, and I'm not sure that all of what Lady Carstairs is saying may be true. It seems that, after a near-fatal time-travel mistake, She's made a deal with a monster from another dimension, and it wants out. Arriving at the mansion, the Doctor and his new friends try to sneak in, but they've already been spotted by the gaze of the Cyclop beasts. Sarah Jane tries to convince Lady Carstairs that the Doctor is a mere servant, and that she is the Chrono Lord. It works for a while, as the Doctor dodges the grasp of the top-hatted monsters, allowing the Professor and Athena to escape but eventually he's captured and when the pair are reunited and he gets a look at the strange lamp of Kronos 
he soon accidentally reveals his knowledge of what it really does. Before the Doctor and Sarah can be tossed into the chrono stream by Lady Carstairs, the Professor and Athena attack. But in the confusion, the Professor knocks the lamp off its pedestal. In a blast of orange energy, Sarah Jane, the Professor, and a Cyclops vanish, only to reappear somewhere, or some when, completely different. What did I think? Well, despite the large info dump at the start, it's a fast-paced read, and the plot certainly moved on. It's not quite heading in the direction I was expecting after issue one. A title like Gaze of the Medusa certainly makes you expect people turned to stone and some Greek myths, but I get the feeling that there might be something a little bit more interesting going on here. History with a Doctor Who twist is always a good thing. I'm looking forward to next issue. The writers certainly have a good grasp on the mannerisms of the Fourth Doctor. There's a lovely exchange when he and Sarah Jane are back together that could have come straight out of one of the TV episodes. And that leads me on to the art, and I'm afraid it's a similar problem as last time. Too much photo reference. Now don't get me wrong, Brian Williamson can certainly draw, his Cyclops in suits designs are lovely, and there's a very nice double page of the Fall of Troy as seen through the lens of the Lamp of Kronos. His backgrounds are also excellent, and he can compose an interesting page. It's just... The Doctor's images are too spot on and too obviously lifted from photographs or screen grabs with the other characters and details added in around it. That one's from City of Death, I found myself thinking. And that one's from Brain of Morbius. I don't know. Maybe it's me. Many fantastic comic book artists use models or photo references to help with their work. Alex Ross or Tony Harris spring to mind. But with them, it's more about getting a pose right or designing a scene, not copying something from existing media. Perhaps for a younger fan, or those that don't know the classic series so well, it's not so noticeable. But for me, well, it took me out of the story far too much. To go to the opposite end of the spectrum, the strange thing is that my favourite of the varying covers is the one by Matt Baxter, who's one of the artists from the wonderful Phoenix comic. It's a cartoony, Roger Langridge-esque image of the Doctor and Sarah Jane, and it just brought a huge smile to my face. Let's get him doing a fourth Doctor backup strip as soon as we possibly can. Okay, finally for this time around, I've had a chance to read all five issues of the eighth Doctor miniseries, which concluded earlier in the year. This one's written by George Mann, a prolific novelist, big Finnish writer, and previous comic scribe for Titan. The art for is from Emma Viacelli. Apologies for the pronunciation there, Emma. Who I've not come across before, but has done work on the graphic novel adaptations of the Vampire Academy series of young adult novels. This particular series is set post the Big Finish continuity, but obviously before the events of the Time War and Night of the Doctor. And it also introduces us to a new companion, the blue-haired Josie Day. I like the fourth or twelfth Doctor stories, which have one tale told in four parts. Here we have five individual adventures with an underlying arc that ties them together. That arc is introduced in the first issue, when the Doctor returns to an old house owned by his third incarnation, and meets artist Josie Day, whose paintings seem to be of alien creatures she's never seen. And what's more, they appear to be able to come to life. 
Who Josie is, and why she can do these things, is played out across the remaining issues, along with another mystery. Who left the Doctor a note in his copy of Jane Eyre, with several sets of space-time coordinates? After the adventure in present-day Earth with living paintings, we swiftly dash between Lumin's world, which is under attack from crystalline entities, Victorian Edinburgh and the case of a magician that can seemingly do real magic with mirrors, a 1930s dinner party where the guests start turning into plants when they're under the thrall of the mythological king of the woodland sprites, and finally a Bakri resurrection barge in deep space where all the secrets are eventually revealed. Now, George Mann should be an old hand at Doctor Who stories by now, and it shows. Yes, the characterisation of the Eighth Doctor down pretty perfectly. He must have listened to a lot of the Biggie Funch audios as the Doctor's speech patterns sound very like Paul McGann's delivery. Equally, he's as adept at a done-in-one-issue story, with just a few hints and carryovers to keep the background plot ticking along. It's clear that he had the whole five-issue arc planned out beforehand, but he doesn't feel like he's forcing it. The quest-style structure helps, of course, and things probably could have been fed out over longer without any problems. And it's not often you get to say that. So, we have five nicely varied stories here, which I liked a lot individually. But my main concern is that the big reveal towards the end of issue five listed more of a, huh? Instead of a, wow. I'm, I'm not going to spoil things, but it did make me think I'd missed an issue somewhere, and I had to check that I'd not skipped some pages. It's an unexpected twist, and I guess fits in with the style of the show in recent years. But it's clumsily done, and to be honest, it reduced my estimation of the overall arc quite a bit. However, it does set up Josie as a companion with a fairly unique backstory. If we get more adventures with this pairing, it'll be interesting to see what direction they take her character. On the art front, Emma's work is obviously influenced by Japanese manga. The pointy chins, facial expressions, hair, character poses and the panel layouts are very reminiscent of that style of comics. Personally, at times I was reminded of works like Black Butler. But then again, my knowledge of manga is extremely limited and I'm sure aficionados could point out to other examples. The alien designs are mainly humanoid variants, but that's fine. Backgrounds are perhaps somewhat simple, but the character works dynamic enough to make up for this. It's a clean, uncluttered style, and it definitely grew on me as I worked my way through the five issues. Particular highlights were issue four, where the period setting and the alien tendrils really seemed to play to her strengths, particularly a spread of the history of the Nixie King. And it's also worth mentioning a flashback sequence in issue five, where many secrets are exposed. Lovely stuff. Now, when we have four ongoing Doctor Who series and a bunch of minis from Titan, it's fair to say there's probably more new monthly Doctor Who comics than at any other time in the show's history. I don't really think we need an eighth Doctor ongoing series, but I'd be quite happy to see an annual mini event from this particular team. The collected edition, under the umbrella title A Matter of Life and Death, just came out on 18th of May. I definitely think it's worth picking up. Okay, that's more enough for me. See you next time. 
Okay, and now for me to take a turn in the TARDIS library. I won't be talking about a comic book, though. I want to talk about Royal Blood by Una McCormack. It's the 55th in the series of new series adventures, or NSAs, that are out there. These began with Ninth Doctor novels, and they've continued through Tenth and Eleventh Doctor novels, and now we're in, obviously, the era of the Twelfth Doctor. And previously, there was a release of uh, three novels back in 2014, featuring the Twelfth Doctor and Clara. They were The Blood Cell, Silhouette, and The Crawling Terror. If you want to hear my thoughts on those, I looked at The Blood Cell in the Who Wars podcast, episode 37. I looked at Silhouette in the Who Wars podcast, number 40. And I looked at The Crawling Terror in the Who Wars podcast, number 41. So if you go to the dwshow.net, you'll be able to look up those old episodes of the Who Wars podcast and hear what I had to say about the first three uh, 12th Doctor books in the NSA range. So, this is the fourth book. What did I think? Well, up front, I didn't like this much at all. The Doctor and Clara, and I should say spoilers here if you don't want to hear what the novel's about, tune out now, fast forward, whatever you might like to do. The Doctor and Clara land in this kingdom, this medieval-type place called Verus. It uh, It's an interesting place because it's medieval, but there are shades of technology from a past that's been forgotten. So they have lighting, you know, they don't have burning torches on the walls, they actually have lighting. Uh, Some of the guards have these lightsaber-like devices instead of swords, and they have all manner of things that they don't know how they work, they can't repair them, they can't make more of them, but they use them. But there's this sense that the kingdom is slowly falling to pieces, even though it does have this wonderful technology from the past. Now, Veruz is also under threat from a nearby kingdom. Veruz is described as being the kingdom between the, the mountains and the sea, and then there's this kingdom from beyond the mountains that wants to come over the mountains and invade them, and apparently this has been a threat for a long, long time, and it's finally, finally happening around the time of this novel. Now, that's pretty much all you need to know for about three quarters of the book. Once it's set up in the opening chapters... It just seems to go around and around in circles and very little happens of note. You keep getting told that Veruz is the kingdom between the mountains and the sea and they have this technology and things are falling down. And that just seems to be the theme for three quarters of the novel. While the Doctor stands off to one side and doesn't do much, Clara, in typical companion style, gets separated from him. She's off having another little adventure, but it's not really an adventure. It's not that interesting. And nothing much happens. Until about three quarters of the way through the book. You see, that's when Lancelot and his knights arrive. Yes, that that Lancelot. Uh, He's now a space traveller, apparently. Although they still have the uh, the knight regalia and so on. And they're still looking for the Holy Grail, as you'd expect. Um, Now, this could, could have been interesting. Although it does happen quite late in the novel to save the day. Except it's not. Lancelot's this mopey, silent type, although he does manage to attract people to his side in the quest, and there's a reason for that. Maybe I won't say why that is, in in case you are trying not to be spoiled. But they sort of leave Verus, Lancelot and his knights, almost as soon as they enter it. They sort of come in and say, we're here, we're looking for the Grail, and they take most of Verus's knights with them to go looking for the Grail in the nearby countryside. None of this, though, is done with any sort of haste or real sense of purpose there's just not a lot here to get excited about or interested in 
As I mentioned, throughout it all, the Doctor's left just to throw in some Doctorish lines at times, but he's more of an observer. He's more on the the wings, and Clara's off having this adventure with another star traveller. He's an intergalactic kind of collector who's there for his own purposes, but he's not incredibly interesting either. And towards the end of the novel, it turns out there's another Grail-like object, just to confuse everything. Um, There's another Grail-like object that people are searching for called the Glamour. Now, can I just stop here and say how much the name rankles with me? The Glamour. And yes, I realise there's an archaic use of the word meaning enchantment and magic and, you know, that ties into what the Glamour supposedly is. But there's the key word, it's archaic. When I hear Glamour, I'm thinking about the fashion world or something. It just doesn't sound right when someone says, I'm looking for the Glamour. It's like... They want a new hairstyle or a new coat or something. It's just... It just doesn't sit right with me. I think they could have thought of a better name than the Glamour. Because it just... I don't know. uh, Maybe it's just me. But it it just doesn't sit with me. It just doesn't sound like a very good name for something. Anyway, I won't meander. You get down to the last few pages of this book. And Veruz still hasn't been invaded. And the Doctor and Clara still haven't met back up again. And the glamour still hasn't been found. And then, all of a sudden, all of these things resolve themselves, in a manner of speaking. And it's all a bit meh, to be honest. Meh. Anyway, the first three Twelfth Doctor books were fun to read, in different ways. But I've got to say, this was a total drag. What made it worse was that it was released last year, alongside two other books. And all of them have subtitled on the front cover that they're part of the Glamour Chronicles. So as I struggled with finishing this, and to my shame, I think that means I sat on this really easy-to-read book for about eight months. And, yep, that's how badly I rated this. I just would read a page or two at a time and just put it down for a day or two at a time. It was just like, I, I, I want to read this, but I don't want to read this. It, it's one of those books. Um, while I was doing that, I kept thinking that there's another two books about trying to find this silly bloody thing. <laughs> Maybe that's what was slowing me down reading this book. They're just thinking, oh, there's more of this to come. Oh, no. But, to end on a happy note, I've started reading the next book. Well, what I thought was the next book, actually. Um, apparently it's not. It's called Deep Time. That's apparently the one I should read after the one that comes next, if that makes any sense. And with regard to Deep Time, I've ploughed through the first five chapters without stopping. It's a ripper. Um, I might have to stop, however, and read the real next book, which is called The Big Bang Generation, which uh, I guess has the double whammy of sounding too much like the Big Bang Theory and is also set in my hometown of Sydney. And I really hate stories set in Sydney, especially when they're written by people who aren't from here, like Gary Russell. Um, so I'm, I'm kind of dreading actually putting down Deep Time, which I'm really loving, and picking up a book that has a silly name and set in a place I don't really want it to be set in and it is part of the Glamour Chronicles. Oh no, I don't know how that's going to go. So be that as it may, I'm going to start reading Big Bang Theory. No, Big Bang Generation. I'll let you know how that goes next time if I manage to get through it (laughs) and then I'll get back to Deep Time, which as I say uh, is a real, real great book so far. Really interesting themes they're off in space, they're doing interesting stuff, there's uh, some interesting, well I won't go into it too deeply, but there's some interesting um, 
moral issues with regard to clones and using clones in different ways. All sorts of good stuff there. So I, I have the sense that at least the third book in this run of three is a real good one. The first one certainly wasn't. What will happen when I read the one in the middle, which is the one I should be reading now? Tune in next month and see if I got through it. <laughs> I'll talk to you later. On BBC Two in a moment, the Australian film season continues with the highly acclaimed film Storm Boy, the Academy Award winner set in the spectacular scenery of the South Australian coastline. Here on BBC One, we find ourselves whisked off much further into the future in Doctor Who. Um, so, season 27 um, that uh, was never made. How much did you, did you know Doctor Who was done after season 26? You see, they never had the good grace to tell us to cancel the show. In a sense, I don't think they ever did cancel it. I think they just didn't renew it. They just let it drag on. John certainly had an inkling that it wasn't going to, the next season wasn't going to come anytime soon. It wasn't going to follow on immediately because he got me to, to write a little coda for survival. Survival wasn't the last episode to be shot, but it would be the last to be transmitted. Mm. So for the very last episode, he wanted a kind of little, he he wanted a little kind of farewell speech because he knew that there wasn't going to be another series immediately. That it was going to be rested for at least a year, so that's how much John knew. But nobody ever had the good grace to tell us to our faces that they were cancelling the show. And as I said, I don't think they did cancel; they just kind of let let it lie there. We, and the behaviour of the BBC was just completely disgraceful in this regard, especially to yeah, John. It was horrendous. Yeah, my, I mean, my understanding of it: John was what was a staff producer. Now, what that means is he had a job for life. Uh, I was guest staff, which means I was freelance, and and I had no employment security, but John had a job for life. Mm. And as I understand it, what happened was, after they cancelled Who, he was just sitting there doing nothing for years. And he hated that. He was he wanted to be a working producer. So the story goes that it was intimated to John that if he resigned his staff producership and went freelance, that they'd give him some work. Of course, as soon as he resigned, they didn't give him any work and he was stuffed. I mean, that was the kind of way he was treated. John had his flaws. He had his faults. Mm. But he certainly didn't deserve to be treated like that. And Doctor Who was a great show. I mean, it was making money for them all over the world. And these bastards cancelled it. It still makes me furious to this day. I mean, yeah, I mean, obviously, all us Who fans, it was a very dark day. The BBC were horrendous, you know, for what they did. I mean, John Nathan Turner, as controversial as he is, you know, and that's a good thing for me because he's probably my favourite producer for the reasons of his of his strengths. He wasn't afraid, you know, to, like you say, embrace ideas and... And try something different. And he gave new talent a chance. Now, he made yeah. some terrible mistakes. I mean, all the, by the time I'd come on, I think that the show had been run into the ground. That You know, I really do. I think it was really in the doldrums. And that was the result of the directions and the decisions that John had taken. Yeah. But at the same time, he hired me. He hired Sylvester. He hired Sophie. Mm. He let me hire the writers that got the, the show out of the doldrums. And, we, you know, we were under full sail. We were doing great. So, you know, John was capable of, of screwing the show up and putting it back together again. And that, that was why it was so infuriating that they cancelled us just when we were getting really good. I mean, we'd done Remembrance of the Daleks. We'd done, yeah. we, we'd done Fenric. Fenric. We'd done yeah. Survival. We'd done Ghostlight. And then they cancelled the show. It, you know... What can you say? What And that's the thing, isn't it? Because we never saw season twenty-seven. Did you? How much had you, had you prepared anything at all for? Season there were no written scripts. 
there were a lot of ideas floating around, uh, including um, introducing a new companion, because we probably would have done that at some point in that, that season. And there was also the idea of how Sophie was such a great companion, ace, uh, that, that we wanted to not just let her, you know, just disappear. And so Mark and Ben had come up with, cooked up the idea that she should become a time lord, time lady. Now, I always hate, I make no bones about hating the time lords simply because they diminish the doctor, but they're part of the show's heritage. And so that, that, that was their notion. I thought, okay, that's cool. You know, I can, we can endure a time, time lord subplot if it, if it pays off Sophie and Ace really well. So that, that's probably what we would have done. And we come up, we'd come up with this fantastic new companion who had seen some life in the, uh, in the big finish, big finish audios, yeah. yeah, yeah, rain. She was terrific. Uh, ben Aronovich and I created her, and um, yeah. But other than that, we had little tag ends of stories. What I had more than finished stories was writers I wanted to use. Writers like Robin Mukherjee, Tony Etchell, a guy I think it was Charles Vincent, a couple others. Mm. Because I never got to work with them, the names aren't branded into my brain. But yeah, so a lot of stuff lined up. A lot of interesting ideas. And it could have been, and Sylvester had really hit his stride and, yeah, and yeah. settled in with Sophie, and we'd learned how to do it. So, of course, that's the point at which they boot you out, is the point at which you got really good at doing it. Mm-hmm. Anyway, so season 27 is, was just a tantalizing possibility, really. Because obviously, you know, the, the, during the dark times when it was off air, um, the Virgin Books, which you were quite a, a strong com- contributor to, you know, along with, along with Mark Latton. Ben Ivanovich, how, how was it? How was that? Did you have a big? Obviously, you did three books, but did you have any, any sort of part in the Virgin? I'm chuckling because my big uh, contribution to the, the Virgin New Adventures was they came to me and um, they offered me the chance to do one, and I heard what the deal was financially, and I said no because right. <laughs> <laughs> money was crap. Yeah. So my agent said, "Oh, this is great. I never get to say no to anything because people always need the work too badly." Yeah. So he went back to them and said no, and so they jacked the offer up. I think they increased the offer by five hundred pounds or something. Yeah. And the, the the thing, the nice thing about that was that wasn't just for me. I mean, all the writers got an improved deal. So my big contribution to the new adventures, everybody got five hundred quid more than they would have done. So that was my my big sort of. Um, practical contribution i suppose my uh, creative contribution was i wrote quite a dark and adult kind of novel but you see that that was i was sort of invited to do that because they they had the whole deal that made it more attractive was these weren't novelizations these were full-length novels proper proper long novels and they were aimed at a more adult market that was always their intent to, to do that and so that was quite attractive and so although i helped to set the stamp on that. It was kind of the brief I had to, to an extent. I, I was very, Ben Aronovich had given me a book called Neuromance by William Gibson, which was the classic cyberpunk novel. It was the novel that introduced cyberpunk. Mm. So I read, I love that. I also loved its sequel, which was called Count Zero. So that was what was floating around in my head. And that was the model I had in mind when I sat down to write a Doctor Who novel. I wanted to write a cyberpunk one. And those books, um, what we laughingly call the war trilogy, Warhead, Warlock, War Child. Um, my sister always said if I wrote another one, I should call it Wardrobe. <laughs> it's pretty, pretty witty coming from my sister. So those three books, um, I think they were quite influential. But when I look back at them, I just remember what a learning curve it was. I was kind of 
hacking around in the jungle trying to work out how to write novels. And people have said some very nice things about them, and I'm very proud of that. Yeah. I, I kind of can't bear to go back and look at them for fear I'll see the flaws in them. Uh, I mean, the, the Virgin novels, a lot was tried, and obviously, you know, some of it has come to fruition on, you know, on television. It was human nature and, you know, that kind of, you know... Yeah, which was a terrific Paul's story, yeah. Yeah, there's a lot of strong ideas. And, it, and again, it just brings you back to thinking if, you'd con- if Doctor Who had continued, the BBC had continued, you know, you've got all these writers here who've written these extremely strong novels, including yourself, that it could have been so good. Do you know what I mean? Well, there was a, a big pool of the talent, but the problem was, certainly when I was doing it, is you, had, you could have four writers a year at most. Right. Yeah, and as script editor, I should have been writing some of those. I mean, that all the other script editors had, and I kind of very nobly and self-sacrificingly just thought, oh, I'm going to get a whole bunch of new writers, give them the chance. But normally you'd have the script writer doing one, and then that's, so that'd be three, three a year. That's about the maximum you could hope to use. And then, you, of course, you'd read... Somebody like Ben comes along, does a great script. You think, oh, we've got to use Ben again. Yeah. Briggs does a great script, use him. Stephen White's done a great script, use him again. Yeah. You know, I would have used Rowan again. So soon you'd be in a position where... You just had a log jam. So, so say I'd done season 27 with my dream team of writers, it probably would have been something like Ben, Rona, Ian, Mark, you know, or yeah, one myself. So, so where would the new writers come? I still wanted to bring new writers. And so you rapidly run out of slots. So you're saying that there's this uh, wealth of talent. The problem is getting that wealth of talent through the bottleneck of very limited commissioning on the telly. He always feels like a bit more of a, a team of writers. So the, the people that you brought on, I don't know if it's the way you, you sort of talk about. You're talking in a very, in a, you know, an extremely high light, and rightly so, or good light. But it feels like more of a team effort. We, we, we were, team, but we, 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 I deliberately, well, I deliberately encouraged that, but mostly because it was fun. Yeah. I'd get them in, we'd have lunch together. I'd get them to talk to each other, and they would begin swapping ideas, and you got this wonderful kind of cross pollination going, and so you get um, people like Ben and Mark dreaming up this stuff, and Briggs, and, and you know, would involve. Graham Curry. It was really collegial. It was terrific. Yeah. And Rona, too. It wasn't just a boys' club. And it's, you've got all these people. They're all talking to each other, all looking. The great thing was once I got some good scripts written, I could show them to people. Yeah. Probably about probably Dragonfire was the first one that really began to show what we wanted to do because you were talking about your favorite seasons being 25, 26. Yeah. And, well, season 24, I mean, everybody says that. And I keep thinking, oh, why don't I like 24? And, of course... There were a lot of problems with 24. I considered Time and the Rani a write-off. Some people love it. I, I take no credit for it. I don't like it. It's just not what I wanted to do. So then you had the remaining three stories. Um, Paradise Towers, Stephen's a great writer. Uh, Malcolm's terrific. And Briggs with uh, Bannerman and Dragonfire, right? But the thing is, we've still got Bonnie. Now, Bonnie was potentially a great... Mel was potentially a great companion. There's no question that Bonnie Langford couldn't have done it because she could we know from her work with big finish how good she can be and now she's on eastenders right she had been lumbered with this persona of the kind of the girl who screams and mel who had originally supposed to be this computer whiz that was all gone out the window she just sort of wore silly frocks and would scream and run down corridors so we had we were at a dead end we were stuck with that uh dead end companion so I know that sounds terribly cruel, and, but it was unnecess- unnecessary, but it did end up that way. So we couldn't really get going. We had Sylvester, who was fantastic. Brilliant. We couldn't really get going until we had a new companion. So it was really only with Dragonfire that we began to show what we were capable of doing. And Dragonfire has some great stuff in it, but it's not quite there. Uh, but I, as you say, 
with the next season, we are there because all the elements are in place. Yeah, definitely, without a doubt. Um, comic books. Now, this was, uh, I've done a tiny bit of writing, a tiny bit of writing in my time. And something that always not, maybe, yeah, fascinates me is applying writing to a visual, like a proper visual medium, if you see what I mean. So it's, yeah. you've got very limited text, because um, it's obviously all about the artwork, usually. Um, how do you go about writing comics? That's something that... Co- comics are very easy. Um, well, they're not necessarily easy to do well, but they're an easy format to write to. Mm. Um, they're easier than a TV script, because you just need this... And you can do things that you can't do in television. You just need this... You do need to describe things, because you need to tell the artist exactly what you see in your head. They won't always draw it, but a good good artist, I think, will. So when Dave Gibbons is drawing Watchmen, if you look at the Watchmen scripts, those are... Alan Moore has described in incredible detail what he wants. Yeah. I mean, just the first, the very first panel, which is a shot of some garbage in the gutter. There's this, like, this 30-line description of what he wants. <laughs> Culminating in Alan Moore saying, oh, let's have some good gutter art here, Dave. Uh, so you do have to say what is in your head. So you need to give a succinct but very clear description. Mm. And these days, I am writing comics. In fact, Ben Aronovich and I are writing comics uh, comic book spin-offs of his Rivers of London novels. That's great, great novel, that. Quick, quick ad here. If anybody hasn't tried Rivers of London yes. and subsequent four novels, go out and try them right now. They're fantastic. Yeah. And we're doing comic books, not based on the novels, but with the same character. They're new stories featuring the characters mm-hmm. and featuring the world. And turning out terrific. The first one's due out in July, I believe, from, from Titan Comics. Oh, We've got right. Lee Sullivan doing the art and a, and a wonderful colorist called Luis Guerrero. Now, Lee is knocking it out of the ballpark. We're so happy with the artwork on it. And Lewis just adds another dimension because I've never realized how much a colorist, the, the color can add to things. Mm. Anyway, we've got this great team going. It's very gratifying. So what I was saying is when we write the scripts, for instance, when we write the scripts, we will put in photo reference for Lee or like a, um, you know, a URL that said, go to this page and have a look at such and such. Yeah. And it's just really useful. And he, he's really taken that on board. He does a, a great job. So writing for comics, if you're interested in writing for comics, you should just do what I did, which is to get, get a hold of some comic scripts. I, I love Alan Moore's work. I, he's my hero, actually. Yeah. And so I had some fanzines which had some excerpts from his scripts. So, okay, so that's how you do the layout. There's no one fixed layout, but there's a general layout that you approach separating dialogue and action and breaking up panels and pages. So uh, and you, uh, you just go online these days and find some examples and just read some of the best. Read somebody like Alan Moore and just yeah. get a feel for it. But it, So it's uh, that's kind of a, a bit of a brush off because you were talking about what it's like to write for comics. The easiest thing is to look at some comic scripts. That And the reason I'm kind of giving that glib, dismissive answer is because it's a bit hard for me to isolate in my head exactly how writing a comic is different from writing a film or a TV script. There, there are crucial differences, but I have to have be working on one at the moment, to, or yeah. preferably one in each genre, to sort of give you an account. But certainly compared to writing novels, they're vastly easier. They're vastly easier in the sense that they're quick to write. Mm. However, they are more difficult in that they have to be immensely compressed. Yeah. Recently I've been doing some comics for Doctor Who Adventures, which is a magazine, Doctor Who magazine aimed at kids. Mm. And they have a comic strip in there, which is four pages long. So you've got to tell the entire story in four pages. And that's an incredible discipline and a lot of fun. And at one point, they, they decided to split the script up 
like you used to have four pages together, but then they decided it'd be nice to have a cliffhanger. So you'd have two pages. Then later in the issue, you'd have another two pages. Yeah, yeah. So you're sort of going to have, have a two-page unit. It's quite interesting. And it's, it's great fun. Yeah. And it, but it does require your head to be dialed into the correct wavelength to do it. And it, so it's Rivers of London that's coming out in the uh, in July. Yeah, it's what it is, is is the way it works is they do a five issue comic book run and then they gather those together in book form as a graphic novel. So we the the, uh, the five issues should be coming out something like July, August, September, October, etc. And then in the following year, which is twenty sixteen, early in twenty sixteen, the graphic novel should be out. And by that time, there should be hopefully we'll have had another five issues out. So yeah. Fingers crossed. Let's hope that this works because I love working with Ben, obviously. I mean, that's yeah. great fun. But but Lee and Lewis are such a great art team. And, you know, everybody always has to say that, oh, well, we love working with such and such. But in this case, it's so true because we were so delighted with what he did because we didn't know – we'd never seen – our scripts brought to life as comics before. Well, I, I'd done some stuff for Doctor Who, but not for Rivers of London. And suddenly, it's like a whole new world because none of these characters had ever been visually represented before. Like Nightingale. What does Nightingale look like? What does Peter look like? Yeah. What does Beverly Brook look like? She, she looks very nice, I have to tell you. She looks lovely. <laughs> and Molly. And like we haven't seen Molly yet because she doesn't turn up in the first issue. So next issue, we're going to see what Molly looks like for the first yeah, time. Really and obviously, it's a two-way thing. So if... You know, if we think that Peter doesn't look quite right, we get back to Lee and say, oh, you know, he looks like he, he looks um, he should be younger and thinner, something like that. And so there might be some back and forth about Molly, but then it gets fixed. And then you've got this character. It's just it's great fun. It really is. Brilliant. Look forward to that one. Definitely. And, and what else are you up to nowadays? What, you know, well, I'm glad you asked because um, I've just got a three book deal with type i've been writing crime novels uh, and what happened was ben wrote these big best-selling books and they were a big success and he said to me you know what the trick is the trick is to write about what you really love and i love london and i love science fiction uh, although the books rivers of london are kind of supernatural fantasies they are grounded in a realistic um, rationale so they are science fiction so Ben loves science fiction and London and crime novels so he sort of combined those and he came up with Rivers of London so I thought well what do I love and what I love is uh, I love jazz and I love collecting records and sort of poking around in, in charity shops looking for uh, you know a wonderful record and I love crime novels so I came up with this the vinyl detective who's basically a record collector a record hunter uh, who goes out there and solves mysteries and crime each book involves uh, a record, like the record is sort of like the Maltese Falcon, if you know what that is. It's the MacGuffin. He, he, yeah. There's a rare record for each book, which is at the center of the mystery. And it, there's murder and mystery and mayhem. Really? A lot of fun. And I wrote these, I, I wrote one of these books and I loved it so much. I, I wrote the other two, which you should never do. You should never write a, a sequel until you've sold the first book. But I did this a couple of years back, just when Ben was launching his books. So I had these, these three novels and my agent couldn't find a publisher and he kind of shrugged and he gave up. But thanks to a chap called Guy Adams, who's another science fiction writer, another comic book writer, great bloke, he introduced me to an editor type books called Miranda Dewis, who's wonderful. And she loved these books. So you're saying what I'm doing, I've got a three book deal for my crime series, The Vinyl Detective, first book due out about April 2016. But getting back to Doctor Who, it's probably worth mentioning, um, my two of my Doctor Who comic strips have been reprinted in a volume called 
The Good Soldier from Panini, which includes a bunch of other strips uh, by other hands like Paul Cornell. Uh, and it's, it's, so that's a nice kind of graphic novel thing that, that's just being published now. And also if people want to see something that's purely my work on Doctor Who, I've done this book called Script Doctor, which by a great stroke of luck when I was working on the show, I kept a diary. So I was able to kind of, you can, it's like a little time capsule. I was able to write down what was said and done behind the scenes when we're making the show. So my book, Script Doctor, is out there. It's from Milk Publishing, which is spelled M-I-W-K, for reasons we won't go into. But definitely check out, check out the comic. It's dynamite. It, it, it should be great. Definitely, definitely. And just to sort of finish off with, obviously Doctor Who now is back with a vengeance and has been now for 10 years. Um, are you, are you, do you, have a, are you a fan of it at all? Do you watch a little bit of it? Or? I watch it now and then. Um, I, I, oh, they very kindly invite me to the, uh, the, the Grand Christmas show at the, the BFI. Brilliant. And I, you know, I love doing that. But the, the truth is, it's a bit like a party that I haven't been invited to. So I don't watch it religiously because I feel left out. Yeah, <laughs> I know that sounds kind of sad, but, it, but that's the way I feel. So I don't follow it closely. But I'm very aware of what's going on. Like, so for instance, when I saw they got Capaldi, oh, yeah, what a yeah. great idea, fantastic. But there have been great casting decisions all the way through. As soon as I heard that that they were going to cast that, that who they were going to cast as Rose, as soon as I heard the name Billy Tyler, I thought, yes, mm. Billy yeah. Piper, Billy, Billy Piper. Piper. They, they got it absolutely. Rose Tyler, Billy Piper. Sorry about that. Yeah. I thought, yes, John would have appreciated that because she she had she came with a built-in kind of um, following because she'd been a successful singer. Yeah. And I thought, so you get this instant publicity blast, but also she was perfect. Like, yes. I, I thought at that point I knew that Russell knew what he was doing. Mm-hmm. And they've continued to know what they're doing with the casting all the way through. Uh, and Capaldi just being the latest example of that. Have, have you ever been approached in discussions about writing for the new I would love to. I'd love to. I went up to Steve Moffat uh, at the um, the Christmas show at the BFI mm-hmm. And I said, oh, you know, Ben's got a great idea for, for a Doctor Who story. And, and he just sort of chuckled. So I took that chuckle to mean uh, we've, got plenty of writers. we've got plenty of writers, sunshine. Don't bother us. But uh, Ben does have a fantastic – well, Ben has got this fantastic idea for a Doctor Who story, which occasionally we talk about from time to time. So I'm not in no way saying that I wouldn't love to do it. I'd love to do one. And I, you know, I've got some stories up my sleeve. But I just – it seems a bit of a shame that Ben has this terrific story and nobody's beating his door down to commission him because he's such a great Who writer. He definitely is, and, and so you, I'd love to see something from and Mark, you know, yourself. And yeah, Mark, Mark uh, he, you see that Mark had written this this Cyberman story called Spare Parts, brilliant, and brilliant. they were they were going to adapt that uh, as a TV series, as a two part Doctor Who television show, mm-hmm. and then I, it all kind of mutated, and they did the Cyberman story, which wasn't quite that. Mark was very badly treated. They should have just hired Mark Platt to write it. Who could be better? Yeah, no, and Spare Parts is definitely one of the best big finished, you know, stories, without a doubt. Is, are we allowed to know a little bit of what Ben's Doctor Who, potentially Doctor Who's about or not? It features the Doctor. Excellent, that's a very informative one. <laughs> that's a story. <laughs> Thank you very much indeed for your time, Andrew. Thank you, all the best. Oh, 
Well, here we are at the end of the fifth Doctor Who show. Can you believe that? My thanks, as always, to the team of Ian and Jim and Bob and Lex and Matt and Kevin. It gets a bit rhythmical as I do this, doesn't it? And our special guest, Andrew Cartmell. Not that he knew at the time he'd be appearing on the Doctor Who show when he recorded all those months ago for Proctor Who, but uh, very happy to have rerun that interview. And uh, if you like what you heard, do tune in to Proctor Who. They don't do interviews like that every show, that's for sure, but they are a great bunch of guys, and if you've already got a taste for Bob Fleming, and who doesn't have a taste for Bob Fleming, quite frankly, um, (laughs) you'll probably enjoy it very, very much. Of course, Mark Atkinson, another one of the Proctor Who team, was on last episode talking about Eternal, the Doctor Who spiritual adventure he'd written. All very incestuous, this Doctor Who podcasting scene, I must say. Now, moving on from that, we did have a letter this past month. It's from Philip Bull, and Philip says, Hi, Rob. I recently got into podcasts, a great way to fill the time walking to and from school. That's very true. I started with MuggleCast and After Buzz for The Walking Dead, so I had two of my fandom tastes fulfilled. Soon, however, I realized something was missing. Doctor Who. I did a quick search, and the first one I came across was the Doctor Who show. Despite the fact it was only two episodes old, I gave it a go and haven't missed an episode since. I love the reviews, the interviews, and the breadth of knowledge you guys seem to have on everything, such as the Daypole figures. I hope to keep listening to your wonderful show, and let's hope this message gets into your feedback section. Thanks. Oh, thank you, Philip. I um, spoke at the start of the show about how I'd been quite ill uh, this past month and just really off my game and I don't know if any of you out there have produced podcasts but they do take a bit of effort you know there's not just the recording there's the you know editing and splicing everything together and as I was looking at putting this episode together say a, a week or two ago I was feeling really down in the dumps about it and to get an email like this is really really good like you might think it's something you you know knocked off after lunch one day in you know a few minutes but to a podcast creator it's excellent to hear that people are out there listening and that they enjoy what you do and i'd encourage any of you you know if you're not dropping um itunes reviews for us drop them for other podcasts you like write to other podcasts you like uh, as well as us because it really it really is a lonely life sometimes podcasting (laughs) i don't want to sound too dramatic but when you're talking into a microphone one way and you don't always get a lot of feedback yet you know the people are listening because you see the statistics coming through and you know it's getting downloaded x number of times you know people are listening and you don't hear from them it feels very one way at times so you know if you would like to write into the show please do it 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 really helps, and in this particular month, it helped a lot, Philip, so you probably don't know how much you helped. Um, What else? Before I go, uh, shout out to Hayden Gribble. Hayden was an interview subject on our second show. He spoke about being a younger Doctor Who fan in his 20s, but with this passionate love for Doctor Who going back, you know, to the the early stuff from 50 years ago. And uh, Hayden is part of the Diddly Dumb podcast, as we talked about on that on that show. But he's also just started a new podcast, and it's called Podcasters Royale. Now, if you're into James Bond 007 type shenanigans, I recommend looking it up and uh, tuning in. The first episode is out now. It's a discussion of GoldenEye. And I just happened to be on it. Yeah, it's Hayden, myself, and uh, 
Doc Hume from the Diddly Dumb podcast, better known as Steve Haywood in real life. And we have a really good discussion on GoldenEye. It's um, it's a nice bite-sized, I think, hour 20. So compared to the Doctor Who show, it's a doddle to listen to. Um, funnily enough, we recorded one version of it and the recordings went all wrong and we ended up recording it a second time. So it feels a little tighter and slicker than the original one we recorded, a little shorter too. But uh, give it a listen and ongoing, Hayden will be looking at all the Bond films um, with different guests each... Uh, well, I can't say each week or each month. I'm not sure what his schedule will actually be like. I think fairly irregular. But uh, do give it a go if you like James Bond. It's uh, it's a good format. Hayden's a great guy. And hopefully he'll send me some money for this plug. Anyway, I'm just kidding about that. Hope you all had a good month of May. We're looking into June now. Gosh, I'm going to start planning for the June episode. Please drop us a line if you'd like to say anything. Details in the show. Um, credits that are about to play. And without any further ado, let's play those credits. See you next time. You've been listening to The Doctor Who Show, the podcast where too much Doctor Who is barely enough. Subscribe to us on iTunes or listen through the website at www.thedwshow.net. Write to us at hello at thedwshow.net or send us a quickie on Twitter at thedwshow. Facebook.com forward slash thedwshow is also a good place to find us if you're so inclined. Our version of the Doctor Who theme arranged by George Locke. Look him up on YouTube, folks. This podcast is intended for entertainment and informational purposes only. Doctor Who, all names and sounds, and any other related items are trademarks and or copyrights of the BBC. All other trademarks and trade names are properties of their respective owners. The official Doctor Who website can be found at www.bbc.co.uk forward slash Doctor Who.